Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, from the cockpit, Captain Brown speaking. Welcome aboard for our flight today to Los Angeles. We're at a cruising altitude at 33,000 feet. I'm getting reports of smooth rides. So I'm going to go ahead and turn off the seatbelt sign while the seatbelt sign's off. Feel free to move about the cabin, use the lavatories. However, I do ask to stay in your seats with your seatbelts fastened in case we run into some unexpected bumpy air. Flying time today, five hours, 30 minutes. We should get to Los Angeles about 10 o'clock local time where the weather is 72 degrees, clear skies, as usual out there in California. We've got a great crew to take good care of you back there. We're going to do all we can to give you a safe, smooth, comfortable ride. So all we ask now is that you relax and enjoy the ride. morning and welcome back everyone to audio pong with me as always is zach good morning zach good morning Marco. and today we have a uh well uh, they're all special guests but i'm just he's a, he's an extra special guest this is pilot pete and uh pete is um well are you a former is it, is it fair to say you're former or current uh airline pilot uh retired airline pilot be the best way. retired airline pilot uh -huh. and how long let's just start with that let's start let's talk about your career i guess right off the bat how long have you been a pilot um i started flying for the navy back in uh 1979 so was that 40 43 years now is that right got the math right well, so you started in the navy well i don't even know so you were a navy fighter pilot i was a navy uh, p3 pilot we were the uh we're the uh, submarine hunters is the best way to put it. It was a four-engine turbo prop. Oh, wow. So um, as I like to say to people, I went to Penn State on a full scholarship, and they say, did you play football? I said, I was left out <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was a four-year Navy scholarship, Navy ROTC. So I graduated, went down to flight school, got my wings in 1980, and uh, flew <clears throat> P3s uh, for a few years, and then – I uh, became a flight instructor down in Pensacola, Florida for the last couple of years. So I got out at the end of 1986 and went to work for American Airlines in 1987. And a couple of years ago with the pandemic, they had a uh, uh, early out program to deal with the reduction in flights to try to cut their costs. So I took part in that. So um, retirement is that mandatory retirement for an airline pilot is at 65. So I'll be 65 in January, so that's when I'll be officially retired. But I haven't flown in the last couple of years because of my leave of absence status. So, How old were you when you got uh, your wings in uh, 1980? I was, you, but... uh, let, me, let me do the math, I was 22 years old. Wow. And did that's you so start, cool. did you start ROTC in like high school or? Nope, nope. It was just, uh, it was just when I was at Penn State. Um when I, when I was a little kid, I grew up in a uh, tenement building in the Bronx. Um, had a, came from a family of seven kids and my mom and dad. And I remember my mother watching uh, the ticker tape parade for John Glenn. And she was so excited about it, you know, what a hero he was. And she explained that he was an astronaut. And so um, between that and my dad taking me to the Hayden Planetarium and going to the, you know, seeing the rockets, and everything space in the 60s was the space age. I wanted to become an astronaut. So my dad told me, well, you know, if you want to be an astronaut, I think it's the military pilots that they want to take. 
for that, you know, so you need to be, you know, in the military and be a military pilot. So um, just started pursuing that as a, as a young kid. I guess I'm one of the few people who was really focused on what I wanted to do and then went on and did that. So, um, yeah, just, I just did a lot, of, a lot of research on it. I wanted to go to the service academies, either Air Force or Naval Academy, because, you know, they had pilots in both of those branches. And uh, my father said, well, you should look into this ROTC program as a backup, which I did. And I'm glad because I, uh, I didn't get into the Naval Academy. I was like the 212th alternate. So I ended up going to uh, Penn State. With ROTC, they, they, you apply for the scholarship and then you apply for the colleges that have the programs to try to get accepted. So I told my father, well, I've, I've narrowed down my choices for college. And he says, well, what are they? And I said, well, University of Hawaii, University of Southern California, and University of Miami. Why not? You know, and he started <laughs> laughing and said, you know, well, how do you think you're going to get back home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that? It's very back then it was very expensive to fly you know, before deregulation. So then it became what colleges are within, a, you know, so, so many miles, so many hour driving radius. So Penn State was within five hours and I got accepted by them. So I ended up going to Penn State because I wanted to be far enough away that I wasn't coming home every weekend, but not too far away that I couldn't make it home for the holidays on a, a bus or a, a car share ride or something like that. So that's how that all happened. Now, the, and then you did, was that throughout your entire career? So right off the bat, you had a kind of like a choice, basically, almost like some trucking outfits where you can, you have like a work-life balance or was it always that nice? Like being a pilot was a work-life balance good or there definitely like stretches or moments or periods where, you know, one took over the other. In the Navy, um, we would go on deployments when I was flying the P3s. So we'd go overseas, either, uh, uh, well, Bermuda, if you could believe that or not, that was an overseas posting and, or, uh, uh, Sicily, Spain, the Azores, and we'd be away for like, I don't know, five months. And you get home a couple of times during that period, you know, to see your loved ones. So the separation was difficult at that time. And then going down as a flight instructor, um, it was a little bit better. That was considered shore duty. So you're home every night. So that was a little bit better. And my intention was to be a career naval officer. I, I you know, would have liked to have made Admiral probably you know, maybe captain would have been more obtainable, but uh, uh, my next door neighbor down in Pensacola was one of my old P3 squadron mates. And I went over to his house one morning and he was at his kitchen table. I said, with the typewriter, I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm typing up my resumes for the airlines. So, well, why would you want to fly for the airlines? That's so boring. And so he said, mm. pull up a chair. And he gave me a briefing on what it was like in the airlines and uh, what the duty rigs were like, what it was going to be like being in the Navy for the next 10 years or so, trying to make a career out of it. And that discussion lasted about 30 minutes. I left his house, went over to my house and <laughs> typed up my resignation letter for the Navy. And I said, I'm going to go for the airlines. It sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, I, I just had no idea about the airlines. I just thought, you know, it was, it was boring flying. But the longer I stayed in the Navy less flying I was going to do. So um, got hired by American. And even though you were gone on trips a couple of times a week, you know, for maybe gone for two nights, or whatever, you were still home. And, you know, so it was nice when we started having kids that I was around on my days off to be a hands-on dad. But uh, as my wife you know, and I, you know, like to tell people, 
this past two years has been the first time that we have actually been together, you know, for so long, actually sleeping together for a whole year without me going off on a trip or being deployed somewhere or something like that. So, um, your whole life. So this, I mean, this is the first time your whole life that it's been that way. Right. Right. Because we've always been going away either for a long deployment or just for your overnight trips that, you know, that you'd be flying. So, you know, it's nice. It's, it's nice. As I tell everybody, when I say, do you miss the flying? I had a great career. I loved my time in the Navy. I loved my time in American, but there's nothing like having a regular schedule, a regular sleep cycle, regular exit, everything. Because with the with flying, it gets disrupted depending on when you have to go to work, where you're laying over, how much time you have, you know, where, where you're going to go to eat, if something's even home yeah. when you get in late. So this normalcy, which I think most people already have, it's like kind of a nice thing, you know. And how how do you stay in shape when you're a pilot? Like for like physical health, like. How do you how do you take care of yourself when you're always away? Okay, um, you drink a lot of water in the cockpit because it's a dry environment because of the uh, pressurization, not a lot of moisture in the air. So I think hydration is important. The food they serve you, they, some guys say there's a lot of preservatives in it and all that, but I never met an airline meal that I didn't like. It was usually pretty good. But bring, I would also bring you know food to eat or uh, protein powder shakes after I work out and on. Layovers, I you know they always had a gym at the hotel, or there were usually places to go running outside, uh, you know, running past and all that. So um, this is something else I was thinking about what I was going to say here. Well, my my father died when I was seventeen, but a couple of years before that, um, he had just the uh, just the bar, just the barbell, nothing else. So he was trying to exercise, you know, doing some presses and, and curls and all that. And he said to me. Never let yourself get out of shape because it's so hard to get back into shape. And this is a guy in his 50s, and he had gone to the Merchant yeah, Academy, very fit. So it was good advice, just kind of stuck with me. So I always made it a point to work out. And, you know, somebody says, oh, well, it must be, must be easy for airline pilots. But if that's true, then I guess all airline pilots would be fit. But that isn't necessarily the case either. So it's just a, a priority. But I certainly had the ability to do that on my layovers and make healthy choices eating. So... Your your father passed right before you went to the military and into the college. And right everything. before I went to college, and that that was, that was another. It, it was like I was. My father was um, very controlling because he had had um, you know he had problems with the older children. Let's say I'll leave it at that. But um, mm -hmm. not not to put a bummer on the conversation. Go back to when I was 12, my brother and I, who had just come home from Vietnam, he'd been home for about six months. He and I went on this awesome canoe trip up in the uh, Adirondacks region of New York State. And when we got back, um, a couple of months later, he was killed in a car crash. So here he was, he had survived Vietnam, came home, died in a car crash. So that, you know, obviously does a number on parents and siblings as well. So my father, I think, wanted to be as close to me as he could, because I was the only son left at that point. I had five sisters. So, um, so I just, I, I don't know, I, I guess I don't know where I'm going with this, but anyway, my father had a lot, you know, just was my guy, you know, he was, he was my, uh, uh, my discipline. I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things with my friends, like go to concerts or, you know, always this guilty thing. We well, should be home helping out, help me work on the car. So I'd always end up holding the flashlight and all that. Well, anyway, 
when he died in August before I went off to Penn State, I got to Penn State and it's like, well, now what? And, you know, it's a party environment. So I, I did get into a little, uh, a little bit of the partying and the drinking. And uh, I was going to be an engineer and I ended up having to change majors because I was partying a little too much. So I was able to maintain my scholarship and, and graduate on time. But I think losing that discipline and having that happen at that point in retrospect was you know, pretty, pretty traumatic. And I just wonder what kids today, you know, might be experiencing if they go through something like that, you know, the resources that might be available or, you know, just how difficult it is. You know, I left my mother at home with my sisters, a little bit of the guilt of like, I should be staying home and providing for right. the family. But fortunately my dad worked for IBM and they took very good care of their employees and their survivors, you know, back in, back in the day when they were big blue and companies, you know, were a little more concerned about their workers than their shareholders. Corporations cared yeah, a little bit more about the people that, that worked for them. Yeah. No, I think that's really impressive. Um, you touched on that a bit. And I, I know people in my life that uh, have similar stories and I'm, I'm impressed cause I, I'm impressed with their, let's say their success and their survival through that, that trauma or tribulation, because I also know people who suffered less, let's say tribulation by comparison and their lives are messed up. You know, they gave up on themselves right away. Um, so that, that is, no, that's profound. I think that's extremely profound when someone can survive that kind of a blow, especially since you must have felt I, you know, you, maybe you can talk a little more about it if you, if you feel like it, but it must have felt like the, in a way the reins were gone. Not to say that, you know, you were upset your father was dead. Of course, I mean, that obviously you mourned him, but there must have been some, a little bit of the reins being gone and something of your spirit wanting to just let loose, especially to handle the grief. Does that make sense? Yes. I know I've been that way sometimes in my life. I think, I, th I think that was it exactly because, you know, I told the line with my father, you know, and, uh, uh, just our upbringing, you know, to, you know, to do what's right, work hard in school, you know, and, uh, yeah, it was like all, yeah, my, my control was gone. And I think if my father hadn't died, I probably would have made it through the engineering curriculum and, you know, it would have been a different, different route. I would have still been a pilot, but yeah, just, you know, obviously I was, you know, um, depressed and treated myself with alcohol, I think is what it was and no real mm -hmm. role model or mentor at that time or anybody to check in. And at the same time, my mother was starting to show signs of Alzheimer's with forgetfulness. So, oh, and, uh, man. she was, she was pretty. I guess soft. She was like a loving mom. She couldn't, she couldn't hurt a fly. And so uh, she wasn't much of a disciplinarian either. So didn't have that after my father died. So um, yeah, you know, and, and in, in that respect too, to switch gears, you know, my dad died when I was 17 and here I am a father, you know, Cam and I got Jake and I would have to ask other guys. I said, so what, you know, what was it like with your dad after this point and all that? And a lot of people, when I brought up this discussion were like, holy cow, so you don't know what it's like to have a dad after 17. I said, yeah, so what am I supposed to be doing with my kids? I'm doing what I think is right, but, you know, do you have any advice and all that? And, you know, you kind of, you know, you kind of treat your kids the way your parents did and then take the good and try to leave out the bad right. or do something different. And uh, I, 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 would, I think it worked out good with Cam and Jake. I was just there a lot as an airline pilot and, uh, you know, just trying to teach them to be, you know, good people and just try to be there, tell them that they were loved and all that. And I'm sure that's why, you know, back then people didn't, you know, dads didn't say they love you, you know, 
but uh, that a lot with the kids. Well, when did that change? When did you start saying I love you to your sons? <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think when they got older, because I had these milestones. So one was getting them past the age of 17, because that's when my father died. And then right. getting them past the age of 23, because that's when my brother died. And then me getting past the age of 56, because that's when my father died. So here I am, going to be 65 in January. So, you know, I, you know, breathe a sigh of relief for all those milestones. But I was just telling somebody this story the other day. Um, when hiking with the boys, and I always thought it'd be important to like, you know, just tell them, you know, I love you, care for you. If you ever need anything, you always know to come to me. So we got up to the top of the mountain. And I said, you know what, guys? And then Cam says to Jake, okay, Jake, here it comes. This is where dad says how much he loves us. <laughs> just, <laughs> I got to Leave it to Cam in the room in a tender moment. Forget it. I hate you. You like that better for me to say that? But <laughs> no, you can't. You know, and I was thinking about that too. We, you know, it says, oh, love. Love is the answer. Love is the answer. You know, like. Like is the answer or at least respecting other people. You know, I think love for a guy to say, oh, I love you and all that. If it isn't his, you know, significant other, I think it's tough to say, you know, I love, but I mean, like is good enough. If you I like agree. somebody, you know, and if you don't like them, then at least, you know, maybe respect them and, you know, find somebody else to hang out with. I'm rambling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you said it. I think, I think like is a stronger word. I mean, I, I feel that way. I've always felt that way. Yeah. That's a good point, actually. A little easier. Well, I think, I don't, I don't I think like is a more, applicable word <laughs> you know i think it's easier to apply like like when i use the word love it's i mean it you know like that's like if i say i love you that's like that's 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 it i will die for you you know it's like that's someone i see as a brother or a sister or you know someone that's like family at that point so but yeah. do you guys do you guys I, I, i'm assuming your dads are still around and do you have a good relationship with them uh, my father passed when I was 12. Oh, Jesus. You so. got it. That's terrible. Yeah. I and mean, my sister was two and my brother was 10. So, yeah, that was, and I grew up pretty fast because of that. I bet. Uh, you know, people tell me you're the man of the house now. So, you know, you got to take care of everyone. You got to make sure everyone's okay. I'm like, okay. And I took that to heart and I really, and I really like stepped up, um, you know, didn't really, I don't know. And I was around friends a lot in high school. I didn't, but I didn't do much. You know, I didn't party or anything like that. So, was your mother? But, you know, was right. your mother there? Like, was she okay? And was she dealing with that? That she for a while she was very grief stricken. I mean, we all were. Uh, so I, I was, I was, I was picking up a lot. You know, which which is fine. I don't regret any of that, and I don't blame my mom for anything. Um, she's actually a very wonderful mother, very loving uh, parent, and she's the nicest human being I've ever known. And that's sorry, excuse me. Um, she's a she's the most wonderful person that I've ever met, and that's like I say. My my father taught me how to how to be a good man, and my my mother taught me how to be a good person. Because my father, like you know, she he instilled a lot of like. Um, a lot of like, uh, I don't know, manly, you know, traits, you know, uh, providing for the family, you know, things like that. Um, uh, survival skills, things like how to, how to camp, how to, you know, make a fire, how to wield a knife, how to do all that stuff. My mother taught me how to be a caring individual and how, how to use compassion and stuff like that. So, but yeah, how about good, you, Barco? Good, good life lessons. Um, 
my father's actually still alive, but um, I, I'm not going to make the comparison because it, it doesn't compare to losing a father. But you could say that he wasn't a father after a certain point. Like when I hit my uh, late teens, my life was very turned upside down. Um, and uh, not to get into like a long story, but, you know, it, it uh, he just wasn't there. He still isn't. You know what I mean? So I, I, I got some of that around the same age as you, and then it stopped. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's whatever. My I was lucky, again, with my mother because she – my mother is basically two parents in one because she was able to be strong and disciplined and be loving and caring. And you never knew which one you're going to get, so it kept you on your toes. <laughs> your mother's a beast, though. Yeah. She, she is – how old is she now? She just she just turned sixty five in September. And she yeah. is so active and in shape, and it's crazy. She yeah, she's she's kind of like you, how you're very in shape too. I was gonna say yeah. it's like it's insane. Like she could she could ride a you know do a sixty mile bike ride if she really decided to, <laughs> just like how you did. And, and and here I am on my couch, like thinking like there's no way my back could handle that. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't be in that position that long. Like like my god. No, I'm, yeah, I'm lucky when it comes to that because her and my grandmother, they're like, I mean, they're the kind of people they'll, even if they can't do it, they'll push themselves thinking they can, you know? Yeah, she, and your mom's a very nice person as well. She's a very you. caring person. She's great. Well, I, yeah. somebody in college had told me I was talking to him about losing my dad and he had lost his father too. And I said, well, how do you deal with that? He says, well, there's plenty of people out there that have it worse than me. And I just think about that. Mm. And like you saying that your dad died at 12, you know, of course that's worse. And like having a dad. Well, I don't think, I think at any age, you know, I mean, I, I think you at, at 17, that's another very formal years where it's like, you're moving to college. The, the amount of stress of, of that. And then you also going to the military, I, 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 my mom, she, at, when I went to college, she had a gastric bypass and her lower intestine burst in two spots. So she was going through the throes of death. Like she almost, if she didn't get to the hospital within two hours, she could have passed away. Like it was very close. And just that her recovering from that was stressful enough for me. I couldn't eat or anything. You know, the freshman 15, they say you gained 15 pounds. I lost like 30. It was ridiculous. I you could see my rib cage like coming out through my like the the top of my chest and everything. It was it was horrible. But just to imagine at 17 and your your mom your mom's going through Alzheimer's like signs and your father just passed like that that too is just as bad as any of the things. I don't think that pain is is I think it's relative, you know, though your worst thing is still your worst thing. I, I don't know. That's just kind of like my, my take on it. <laughs> well, my, my plug for mental health awareness now is, you know, cause through the years I've, you know, I, I've been, I've been sober when Trudy got pregnant with Cam, I stopped drinking. And then uh, this thing called nine 11 happened, which really had an impact on the airline industry and all that. So I started getting back into drinking and uh, now I've been sober for you know nine over nine years. And I went to see a counselor with some, you know, with some encouragement from my wife. And the first within the first five minutes of sitting down with him, I was on the couch crying like a baby because I had just told basically what I told you guys and just let it all out. And I guess just being in the in a in a quiet room with somebody that you know is professional. Just, um, just gave me that chance, probably let out everything I've been holding in for years. And it was very, 
it was it was very good. It was just it was like I don't know. It was just from there on in talking about how alcohol affects the body and about stress and anxiety and all that stuff. So anybody who's going through any kind of traumatic thing, I always suggest. I said, listen, counseling. And if it you know if it isn't working, then try another counselor. But I am really a bit, big advocate for uh, people trying to get help and not to have any kind of stigma. And I'm hoping that by you know a big you know godlike person like me, you know, godlike figure saying this, maybe other people say, well, hell, if he went to it, then maybe I should do it. You know, I, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think the more of us that go out there and not have shame about it and just try to get some help, I think the better it is for a lot of people. Cause I just think people are hesitant to get help. So- yeah, I know. I definitely am. <laughs> what do you find that's so helpful about therapy? Just being able to talk about it in the space and or what, what do you think is the mechanism, I guess, that, that allows you to, I don't, to, to get a benefit? I don't, I don't know what it was that set me off like that for that. You know, nothing that he said, like, you know, you know, in like uh, in uh, uh, Goodwill Hunting, he didn't come up to me and say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You know, <laughs> nothing like that. I was just sitting there and just started just going through and I guess just verbally myself saying out loud all these things that had happened in my life. And then just realizing that I'd probably been keeping a lot of this in and just told somebody in confidence and it felt good. Now, I've talked about things with my wife. I've talked about things with the kids and all that. But um, I think what was more was just the way, you know, he explained uh, how alcohol works on the body. And he said, you drink because you're trying to turn off the noise. And that really that really made a lot of sense. It's like, well, you know, then, you know, you've got to find something else to try to avoid the alcohol. You know, you have to deal with things in life or simplify your life. So it was just, there were, you know, not everything he said, you know, made sense to me. Like I told him, I always make lists to get things done. And he says, well, you really don't, shouldn't make a list because once you get things done, then you're going to come up with another list to get things done. You know, what do you really need to do? And I was thinking like, what what planet do you live on? I mean, there's always stuff to do and, you know, make a list to do things, you know, and uh, I don't know. It was just, you know, it was just my first encounter with counseling like that. So I just think being able to speak to somebody who is actually, you know, a professional. So, um, you know, it bothers me about lists. Cause I used to do that for myself. And that was something I, 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 I've always tried to counsel myself like throughout my whole life, even when I was a teenager. And I, I had the same idea to make lists for myself. Right. And I stopped doing it too, because what was, what was bothering me, was I was being haunted by the things on the list I didn't complete. And like you said, I kept making more lists because I now I'm categorizing them, right? List for this, list for that. And each list had things I had done and things I hadn't done. And the things I hadn't done, like I can even talking about it now, I can remember some of the things, you know, from 20 plus years ago. It's like, why did I do that to myself? You know, it's like the comedian, this comedian once said, this, this like no name comedian on like Comedy Central one time, he's like, humans are weird. He's like, you ever do something kind of strange and then think about it for seven years? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's so true. You know, and like you said, the noise in your head, it's, yeah, I mean, we're computers that can't reformat, right? As time goes on, a good memory is almost a curse because it's just more and more data over time that you just have to, you know, partition. Yeah. 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 It starts to slow slow down because you're just bogged down by everything. That's yeah. why one reason I'm happy, I can't remember my life at all. Like I'm horrible. I remember like my own history and my life and things that I've done and that God, happened to me. But like I'm really good at like remembering facts about like random things. So 
like that's something that's very very useful it's like you know forgive and forget they say it's like well it's super easy to forget when you forget everything <laughs> oh, or you know i think i told you guys this the joke about irish alzheimer's is where you forget everything except the grudge <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's where Tolkien got his idea for dwarves. If you ask me, when when dwarves have you know this like infinite book of grudges, it's even called that. Another genres. It's like yeah, that's that's got to be an Irish thing for sure, wow. or Bulgarian thing maybe. <laughs> it could be a Slavic thing. Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. I've got so many questions, Go ahead. Uh, Pete. Go ahead. Um, uh, let me let me get if you got go fire off if you got one because I'm trying to get back on track here. But you talked about so were you okay? So you had you were married when you got married while you were in the military? Yes, I was. Um, uh, Trudy and I were 23 when we met, and we got married at 25. Oh wow! Okay, and I don't know why that's a wild. That's just amazing to me. Well, I was uh, I was based up in Brunswick, Maine, flying P3s at a naval air station, Brunswick. And uh, she's from Lisbon Falls, Maine. And she had been uh, teaching, uh, I think, at Moultonboro Academy up on uh, Lake Winnipesaukee. And then she came home and was living at home for a while. So just a chance encounter that we met. So there was no Tinder back then. How'd you guys hook up? Is it a romantic story? <laughs> I should have her come in here and tell her side of the story. Um, at the officers <laughs> club, they would have... Uh, an event called Singles Night, like once a month. And, uh, you know, eligible young ladies would come to the officer's club. They'd get a pass to come on base. The guys would show up there. It's just a chance to meet people because, you know, they knew what, you know, the women would know, you know, what they're, who they're meeting. They're meeting, you know, Navy pilots, Naval officers. But um, my wife thought that Navy officers were old guys and uh, she had been, to the enlisted men's club a couple of times dancing because they have a nice discotheque floor, you know, the kind that would light up different colors. You know, she was a dancer, you know, she liked disco dancing. So she went out to the old club one night with her friend and she was like the wingman, wing woman. And uh, it ended up that my executive officer introduced us to each other and we just started talking. And I said, what do I have to do to get a date with you? And she said, you have to earn enough points. And so I said, how do I get points? And she said, well, you know, if you dance, you know, if I like the way you dance, you get a point. You know, you say something cute, you get a point. So I was like, you know, I was like a puppy dog in her hand. She had this long, beautiful blonde hair. Just, you know, just, just, she was, she was the, the goddess coming in that night. And I couldn't believe that I was actually talking to her one-on-one -on -one and nobody else had tried to break in or anything like that. So anyway, we danced, we chatted and all that. And at the end of the night, I said, so can I get your phone number? And she said, no. And so we left and that was it, right? So for some reason in conversation, she mentioned her father's name, first and last name. And so back in those days, they had this thing called a phone book that you could go into, oh, yeah. you know? And so I looked up her father's name and I called her and she said, well, since you're smart enough to figure out my phone number, I'll give you enough points. At, at the end of the night, she said, I didn't have enough points to go out with her. So now she said, you have enough points. And so we started dating. And uh, it just it just went on from there. So we uh, that was that's a really that's great story. Awesome. We, yeah. we met on Friday the thirteenth, which was uh, a, a good omen. And yeah, so it's a lucky thing. And when we got <laughs> when we got engaged, uh, it was up there in Maine. There's this place called Lands End on Bailey Island. So we went down there. I had a bottle of champagne in the car. I had asked her to marry me. She said yes. 
So we uh, turned on the radio to see what the song was at the time. And the song that came on was Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. <laughs> so by Friday the 13th, canceled out by Another One Bites the Dust, and it all worked out. So it's been great. Yeah. It's great. She's she's my, she's my best life. friend. She's the uh, love of my life. I just feel very fortunate that I have met her. So it's it probably one of the things that really did save me. I think if I hadn't met her, um, I may not be here right now. And uh, of course, by meeting her, I've got my two great sons, Cam and Jake. So I feel very fortunate, you know, to have met her and to have a family with her. So it's a nice, it's a nice, it's a nice thing. That is fortunate, man. Yeah, that is great. Um, so weird segue. Um, I really wanted to ask you about what it was like to be a pilot back in 2001 for September after September 11th or even during like um what were you were you in a plane when when everything was going when the terrorist attack was happening no I was actually out I was out on a bike ride with another pilot friend and uh, we decided to stop at a local place to get a you know get coffee and bagels and somebody was standing in line and said did you hear what happened no what he said yeah an American Airlines flight just flew into the World Trade Center. So we looked at each other and went back to my house to catch the news just in time to see the United flight going into the South Tower. So we were just shocked. The next thing we did is said, we better call the school and tell the kids, just confirm that they know that dad wasn't flying. So they, you know, we did that. Yeah. And it was just, it was like, you know, how did this happen? And so as things started evolving or like information started coming out, uh, it was like, you used to try to accommodate the hijackers because, you know, they wanted to go to Cuba and everybody lived. Nobody thought they were going to use them as, you know, weapons of mass destruction like they did. So uh, it shook up the industry, um, no flying, reduction in flights, new procedures. And uh, it just, it just, it just changed the airline industry completely. And I think we've, you know, are, have, we're getting back from that. And then of course the pandemic happened, but, there were guys that were stuck overseas because they, you know, the flight's been canceled. And uh, there were people uh, stateside who just tried to get home, rent a car or get a train so they could be back home with their families because nobody really knew what was going to happen next. So um, we slowly got through it. And uh, it just there was just a reduction in force. They had, a, you know, furlough pilots. So that meant everybody kind of moved backwards in their seats. There were pay reductions. Uh, we eventually went into bankruptcy which is more damage to, you know, to the employees and, and all that. So it's just kind of just a, just a, a, just a terrible time. And, you know, we got through it, but it's just amazing. You know, I, I, what those guys were able to pull off was just incredible that they knew how to do this and that they were actually trained to fly the planes into the towers and nothing was better than the people that were on the, uh, Shanksville crash plane, and they actually went into the cockpit to try to take matters into their own hands. And if that isn't something that we should all be doing nowadays, is try to do a little bit more about you know things that are going on, you know at least in this country. You know, it was really something that these people knew what happened on the other three flights, and they took it upon themselves to crash through the cockpit and try to get control of the airplane. And if they had only been able to do that, it would have been fantastic. Mm -hmm. But at least they stopped them from flying into something else and, you know, continuing with their mission. So I think that's the kind of scenario that 
I mean, even even I run through my head. It's like, what would you do? You know, how could you? Because I, I feel like I intervene even on a small level with things. Like, it's just part of my character. And I wish I didn't. Like, sometimes I get involved in other people's, you know, problems, random stranger, just because I want to see who I think the victim is stop being hurt. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just, I want, I agree with you. I I feel like it's at one on one hand, you know, maybe I should just hold back, but I feel like there's certain things that every we all should be intervening on. You know, like you see a like a guy trying to re- grab a woman's purse. Like everybody should be triggered. You know what I mean? Almost like Manchurian Candidate. Like we should all be policemen in that moment. You know what I mean? Like why aren't we? And it is very strange. Like, we're, do you think that's an empathy problem? Do you guys think that's like just a, a sign of the times because of our disconnection in some way due to you know technology? Or I, well, I was going to say the last thing that anybody should be doing is getting their freaking phone out and start videotaping it. And start- that's oh, what yeah. they are doing. <laughs> and that's what they're doing. They're, they're just, you know, it's like, it's like these kids, you know, watching these fights in school and assaults and they're all filming it. Or the stupid ones that are filming them, you know, stealing or doing, you know, committing a crime. But I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. That's a good question. Um, people that step up and, and try to, you know, try to do what's right. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what the, what the answer is or why people are like that. You know, I, I don't, it's sad. I don't know why people are. Well, involved. I think most people are cowards, you know, they don't, they don't want to interact in a conflict. You know, they just want to stay out of it. You know, they, they don't want to put themselves at risk. Mm-hmm. I think that's the major reason. I don't think it has to do with morality or, or technology, you know, holding us back. I think it's just people are afraid to do anything. So everyone makes. Sorry, go ahead. I, I think I read something recently. I'm trying to think what the whole what the whole story was. But instead of screaming for help, you're more likely to get more attention if you yell fire or there's something else. That, like people, rape or not? Yeah, fire instead of rape. That kind yeah, of thing. something like that. That you'll get more help yeah. than if somebody is asking for help. So um, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just there's too many people in the world competing for resources, and you know they just don't care. They just you know they don't want to get involved. They just want to get back on their social media or whatever, or just get back to their home and, and be protected. I have a weird, I have a conspiracy or a theory for it. I think, cause there was a, do either of you remember a science fiction show in the nineties called sliders? Oh yeah. Okay. So sliders is still like my all, probably my all time favorite, like sci-fi show. And uh, they had an episode where in one alternate, it was about alternate earths, right? So think like Marvel universe or DC. So on one alternate earth, um, lawyers like litigation and liability was through the roof right in, in like in in america and so people were being sued over every little thing like the position of a you know a sugar packet on a table like it was ridiculous wow. right and that was like the joke that was like the run-on joke for for that episode but things did get worse as far as like liability is concerned in terms of like what we need to be more careful about and i think that is now i think that baked itself in to my generation and every and, and the generation since because i even i like that's changed my mindset over time like over the last 20 30 years like i've changed the way i feel about what i could get in trouble for right and like oh, you, yeah. you, you know if you go to help put out a fire there's a lot less liability right you're less liable for what might happen in, as far as interactions are concerned with other people because everything now and because everything is recorded uh, it almost works against you. I feel in some way like you could be actually made made to look guilty because you could be taken out of context, right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter that there's an hour and a half of you 
putting out a fire. Someone could just borrow 30 seconds or 20 seconds of where you were arguing with uh, the owner or the neighbor or something. You know what I mean? Like it's so, it's so bizarre. The, the, the world we live in the amount of surveillance yeah the, the amount of surveillance and the amount of a uh, lying that the uh the disingenuous like i said everything's always taken out of context that's why i try not to get upset when i'm on like tiktok or some other social media like youtube where they give you these quick quick clips or quick reels and you see you know you see like let's say like a cop beating someone or, or struggling to fight someone and get them down to the ground or whatever and then right away, what does what does your PC brain say say to you? Like, oh, that's you know p- police brutality. But I don't know the story. Like, right. I don't know what that perp is doing or what. what maybe maybe that was a murder. We just finally caught him. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, you don't know. So there used to be a, a commentator, Paul Harvey. I don't know if you remember him, but it'd be the name you know you know, you know so and so. But now you'll hear the rest of the story. And then he would have the background uh-huh. information about stuff. And it'd always be some kind of twist. Like, Oh, I didn't know that, you know, but you're right. You don't, you only get the clip. It's just like, I think, I think the only way you can have a fair uh, media is any kind of issue. List the pros and cons. I mean, each side is just trying to get yeah. their side out there or accusing the other side of something, you know, it's, it's you know, it's to get to the facts and to sort it out and, and to show people, okay, this, these are the pros of this. These are the cons. This is what the Republicans want. This is what the Democrats want. And most of the time, I think, why don't we just split it in the middle? And it's like, no, there is no middle ground anymore to compromise and weakness. No. And so it's I, become more tribal, I, I would say. I mean, do you are you a political person? Do you think um, uh, that our society is becoming more censored or that has suffered a lot from censorship in general, especially over like the last you know, four years, let's say. I think so, because I, I think it's it's tricky because there's free speech, but you can't have hate speech. So is there free speech or not? And I think these kids on college campuses protesting because there's a conservative commentator coming to speak on campus and then canceling that person. I don't think that's right. I think the cancel culture, I think we're a little going a little too far to one side and that backfires. That, tur- that turns off a lot of people. So, um Somebody said you should. If, if you want to be an advocate for freedom of speech, then you have to find the most vile thing that somebody else is doing and defend it. You know, because now we want to be all like Voltaire, these yeah. opinions. And I just, I, I don't know. I just, made, I think social media has contributed a lot to it because things can spread so fast without being checked or just put out there as as the real thing, and it's not. You know, a lot of <clears throat> deep fakes, things like that. So. It's, you know, I mean, trying to gather all the information. Who's got time for that? We're all used to like 10 second TikTok videos, you know, or mm. just a caption. I mean, who has time to filter all the stuff to get all the information behind just one news story? So, yeah. Yeah, that's my problem with trying to be political in any way is that like there's so many different angles and so many different people having their different viewpoints and then i gotta figure out what is your political leaning why are you saying what you're saying how much of it is true how much of it is opinion based what are like the bare bones facts and then it turns into like a full-time job just trying to get like you said one story out of it it's like it's like i don't have time for that Mm -hmm. i have a million other things i need to do like that is my least of my like priority list yeah i think an unavoidable fact too is that the public forum, right? The way we all communicate our opinions is privately owned, right? So like Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, all social media is privately owned, which allows them to 
censor or or throttle the, the the data that comes to them however they like and i think i think that's really the, i think that's the main problem with with uh, our conversation with you with our with with a stranger or someone on the internet is that, that the forum is pro- is is privately owned whereas before i think you could say at least it was contested right i mean obviously we don't own these large powerful technological things right we're just the labor force or however you want to look at us but i think yeah i think that plays the biggest part but i mean do you so do you think that i keep coming back to the well i keep coming back to the fact that you're a pilot because i i wanted to be a pilot when i was a kid and i'm i'm really jealous you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you felt lucky that you knew what your focus in life was going to be when you were very young does does that just feel like luck to you? I mean, did, do you what do you attribute that to? Do you do you feel like do you, were your parents responsible for that, or are you you responsible for that? Is it just luck? Was it the universe aligned? Um, was it Friday the thirteenth? I you know I think I think it was like I said the exposure to a couple of things the Hayden Planetarium thought that was the coolest thing you know seeing rockets and. Uh, uh, meteorites and the display of the solar system, well, everything they had in there, I thought it was fantastic. They had uh, several different scales where you could see what your weight would be on the different planets, which I thought was incredible. Yeah, you know, that's cool. I didn't really yeah. understand, you know, why the weights would be different until later when I took physics, you know. But um, then you go to see the planetarium show, and you know, you're, you're in the city with light pollution, you can't get a clear view of the sky anywhere, right? But you go in here, and all of a sudden you're in space. It was the coolest thing. And just, uh, I don't know, just, I, I, I always, I go back to this. I would stand on the street corner in the Bronx as a kid and I watched the airplanes flying overhead and I would always look up. Not all the kids did that, but I would always look up and see that. And I said, wow, that'd be cool to do that someday. And then my first time in American Airlines flying into LaGuardia, I'm flying over the freaking Bronx and I'm thinking, holy shit, this, it came true, you know? I wanted to do this and that's it happened. Funny, so, that's I don't know. I, I think, I think I, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm odd. I'm different, okay? I'm not a foodie. I, I eat to live, you know? I, you know? I don't like a lot of fancy stuff. I'm not a big consumer and all that. This experience is worth more than going out to a French restaurant or, you know, buying a new bike or something like that. You know, this, this is what I really enjoy. So I just, I don't know, I just had focused on being a pilot. Uh, whenever I rode my bike, I'd pretend I was flying. Was like, if I was with a friend, get him into formation. All right, go into a left echelon, right echelon. Just, I just, I don't know, I just, you know, I just really, 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 you know, wanted to do it. And I just thought it'd be cool. That's so cool. And as I got, you know, I knew you had to get good grades. So I was a good student, you know, enjoyed math and science and all that. So I was a good student. Uh, you know, wasn't wasn't a varsity athlete, but, you know, relatively good shape, which you need to be. So I did a lot of running, you know, and, and lifting weights at the house and all, and just read up on it. So, you know, nowadays kids say, oh, you're a pilot. I want to be a pilot too. I said, okay, well, do you know about the different ways to do it? And try to give them the information about, you know, going the private pilot route or going into the art and military, you know, and different aspects of which military to go into and all that stuff. So, you know, the information is out there and right now is a great time for somebody to want to become a pilot because there was such a hiring boom when I got hired and we we're all about the same age and now we're all retiring. So with the retirements, people let go for the pandemic and then just fly, you know, more people are flying each year, you know, there's a the big demand for pilots. So they've raised the salaries for the regional pilots. So 
they're more enticed to go in and fly because the pay used to be terrible. It's like, why well, pay all this money to get my ratings? And then I'm you know, having to sleep at the airport and all that. So they're, they're making improvements in the, in the entry level positions because everybody wants to get to that, you know, major airline job as an airline pilot. So I just, they're even, go ahead. they're even recruiting. I've, I've seen YouTube ads, uh, both the clickable and the like, you know, recorded live right. like commercials. And uh, I asked uh, a friend of ours who's um, uh, an airline stewardess because I'm like I'm 40 now. She's like, they, are they? You know, can you go and become a pilot at 40? She said, yeah. So apparently, as long as I guess you'd have to get, yeah. You know, obviously, the testing I'm sure is rigorous, but they'll even put you through the training, the schooling, and everything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it must be a boom right now to be to you know become a pilot. It is. It is. And like I said, there's probably an initial investment if you're going. You know, we talk about the civilian or the military route. The advantage to the civilian route is you can get into the flying position sooner because everything in the airline industry is based on seniority, which is based on what you got hired. Whereas the military, they know that these guys want to get out and fly for the airlines. So they've got a longer commitment. So you've got to be in the military for 10 years. So you've lost 10 years of seniority, but guys still get out of the military, but they have to say, okay, do I go to the airlines now or do I get another 10 in and get my 20 year retirement and then maybe go to the airlines? So, yeah, you know, there, there's trade-offs to either one. So, mm. But um, no, I just, I just always, always like flying. And the funny thing is, I don't, you know, I, I really don't care if I fly again. You know, I've gone up in a private airplane. I think we talked about this uh, when we went to the mm. concert. I've gone up, and it's fun, and I enjoy. It, but like I said, I can't, I can't, I could never get a job better than a position I had as a captain at American Airlines. You know, ultimately flying like you know the seven sixty seven. And all that support behind you wow. and the destinations and all that, anything else would be, would be a step down at this point. So what is it like flying that kind of a plane? Like that just mammoth beast, you know, that's heavy ass thing in the sky. I'm, I, I know I'm <laughs> yeah, ignorant. I'm insane. not, I'm a, I'm a peasant. Right. So explain it to me. Like, I mean, if you had to if, like pretend you're me and I mean, how profound is it? I mean, I'm sure it was profound to you, but what is it like flying that plane it almost feels like forgive again my ignorance but almost like the plane flies itself in, in some way like how you know how did you go from explain it i guess how does it All feel right. the first time i flew an airplane was in flight school i was flying the t-28 trojan which was a post-world war ii fighter trainer big reciprocating engine and as soon as you added power you had to start putting in a lot of right rudder to counter the torque of the prop i believe it's called p factor now, back in the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese pilots were learning to fly these airplanes and they would get airborne and let that right rudder out and the plane would do what they call a torque roll and roll over. So you, the fear of God was put into you. You have to keep right rudder in here, right? So you had to do that, you get airborne and now you're going through all these procedures. It's overwhelming at first. And then as you build time and you move up into the P3, which is pretty cool, four engine turboprop, you're advancing and you know with technology and how better the airplanes are because the airlines you know get the newer technology before the military usually so i was going through training to fly the md-80 which was the uh, uh the old dc-9 that they stretched out digital flight guidance system auto land all this i thought it was in the space shuttle but then when you went from the super 80 to the 75 to the 76 it's like holy cow this is even better they'd have uh uh not just lateral navigation but vertical navigation where the plane would automatically descend 
after you programmed it to make these crossing restrictions. It was like, it was like, you know, PFM, pure freaking magic on these airplanes. Mm-hmm. And now I, I never, never flew the triple seven or the fifth and 87, but you know, you lose an engine and the thing automatically puts in some rudder for you and, and that, it does all these things. So it's gotten to the point where they worry that pilots are losing some of their flying skills because the airplanes do so much. So yeah. some of the guys, they, they click off the automation. Like everybody says, so what do you do when you put on the autopilot? Well, you take off without the autopilot. You get airborne. You hand fly it. Some guys like to hand fly up to 3,000. Some like to go to 10,000. Some like to go all the way up to cruise altitude. It's just a matter of preference. And then the autopilot's on in flight. And uh, and then descending, same thing. Some guys wait till they get down, you know, 20,000 feet, 10,000, 3,000. Some guys leave it on until you know, 300 feet above the runway and click it off, you know, because the reason being that the airplane is doing all this stuff and you can monitor what's outside, the transmissions, it raises your awareness elsewhere. You're not focused on the airplane, but sometimes you rely too much on the automation. So you always have to be checking it and making sure, you know, it's it's acting properly. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but Oh, I got several more, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Zach. I can tell he's loaded. He's loaded. Do um, do like my uh, I guess yeah. Does my functions happen a lot with autopilot? Like, does that ever happen or occur? Like where things are supposed to be like on track, but then like the sensor doesn't work or whatever. Um, you know, it might happen once. You go to turn it on, and then it clicks right off. And a lot of times, the airplane not be is not in what we call the trim condition guys just put it on but then the airplane is still trying to trim the aircraft up you know like as you speed up you need to trim in more nose down because of aerodynamics and all that so you just click it back on uh it happened a couple of times in the p3 at 200 feet and that gets your attention because you're you're tracking you're tracking the submarine or getting ready to take pictures of a ship and then the autopilot clicks off you're only 200 feet off the water so you would get on the hands are always on the controls. You're always monitoring the controls, you know, when it's on, but no, it's the, the technology, the manufacturers, what they've made. It, it, it truly is amazing. When you look how far these planes can fly on one engine and they haven't even been in the air yet. And they had the engine certified to go these long distances for the international flights. It's, and, if you see them auto land, it's just it's just incredible what they've designed and how efficient the engines are. So, like I said, we all have a lot of faith in the technology, but once in a while, you know, it, it, it doesn't work right. A lot of times it's operator error. Sometimes it's just, you know, goblins in the in the avionics, as we call it sometimes. And, you know, you you know, you reset things and, and then it works, you know. So and you have backup backup uh, systems to help you too. So for the most part though it works. But did you ever, did you ever have anything go really wrong and you had to I don't know lie to the passengers of the plane <laughs> or like downplay uh, the severity of a moment just to you know keep the civility and the calmness and of the situation under control? Um, I there's been a couple of times. Usually it's delays that you tell the passengers. One time in flight, uh, we hit some turbulence and. Um, Fortunately, the seatbelt sign was on. None of the passengers passengers were up and about in the cabin, uh, but the flight attendants were. And I made an announcement to take your seats immediately. And so the flight attendant up front got into her seat right away. The other two were in the aisle with the cart, so they sat down. And the one in the back was trying to 
get the others to come back to her. And that's when we hit one bump and she ended up hitting her head. And uh, so we had, had, had to make an announcement, tell passengers there wasn't going to be any service. And then we got to Phoenix and arranged for medical services and all that stuff. So that was about that was about the most serious event that I had. And uh, oh, and you had to, you had to land the plane early or at a nearest like airport because of the injury. We decided to press on. We could have gone into Las Vegas, and I just thought the best thing to do was get them to Phoenix because um, we would get the passengers where they not wanted to be. Somebody had already looked at the flight attendant, and she wasn't she wasn't in any you know any danger. She had bumped her head, so we just needed to get it checked out. So I just thought the best thing to do was to go. I think we're leaving from. Uh, uh, it may have been Fresno or Sacramento. It, it wasn't a, a very long flight, but you know, we just, I, I, I liked to press on because I thought there'd be more support for us at Phoenix because that was American Airlines base and the flight attendants would have support there as well. But no, I, I, would, I would never, no, I never lied to the passengers. Um, always felt that they wanted to know what was going on. So if anything, I always try to keep them informed. Uh, like I said, especially with departure delays and, um, for the most part, my flights all got to their destination, except for the few times there was weather at the destination. You had to go to an alternate. And people are understanding. I mean, it's the, it's the weather. Yeah. You can't control the weather. So, I mean, what are you going to do? You're, in, you're, you're sitting in an airplane. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're kind of at the mercy. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't approve of this turbulence. <laughs> Have have you ever flown a helicopter before? I've flown in a helicopter, but I've never actually flown a helicopter. What are the major differences between a helicopter and like the kinds of planes you've flown? Like if you could, you, do they translate at all? The only way you can fly a helicopter is if you can pat your head and rub your belly. Can you do it? Guys do that. Mm -hmm. Pat your head. Let's go now. Yeah, Come on. Pat your head and rub I, your belly. I, I you can do it? To there myself. you go. There you go. You start patting that belly or rubbing your head. <laughs> no, you get your hands full with the helicopter. They are a yeah. little more difficult to fly, but like anything else, once you've had enough training in them, you know, you'll get the, you know, you get used to it. But I just think it's a little more complicated because you've got the, you've got the stick, the rudders, the collective, the throttle. So there's a little more going on there to maintain balanced flight. But Helicopters are pretty cool. The helicopter rides I've had, I've always, I've always enjoyed them. They were kind of fun. You want to hear about the helicopter dunker? Dude, I want to hear it all. <laughs> so when you're going through flight school, <clears throat> your first phase is aviation indoctrination. So there's a lot of classes on, uh, you know, aeronautics, engines, you know, power plants, um, just different things, how planes work, how they fly and all that. They show you some motivational movies, you know, like one called Ramp Strike, where it's nothing but planes crashing onto aircraft carriers. And then the instructor says, you know, you can't, we can't have marginal performance at the aircraft carrier. You have to know what you're doing and all that. So anyway, um, then you went through a whole, you know, water survival. And uh, one of the, one of the things you probably saw it in an officer and a gentleman, if you ever saw that movie, um, mm -hmm. uh, the Dilbert Dunker. It's just a mock-up of a cockpit. It slides down these rails into the pool and it flips upside down. And you have to wait a few seconds for the bubbles to clear. You disconnect and you push yourself out and, and you escape. So that's to simulate if you do a water landing and the plane flips over. Well, they found out that a lot of people were dying in helicopter crashes because the crews were getting the training. They knew how to get out. The window was right here for the pilots. With the crews in the back in the tube, they didn't have any kind of training whatsoever. So they started putting all the air crew 
through the training. So what this is, is a big cylinder. It's a mock-up of a, like a CH-46 helicopter. It's got a long tube. It's got the two you know, pilot seats up front. And it drops into the water, and then it will rotate because, you know, you've got the rotors up on top, so it's heavy, right. so it's going to rotate. Well, sometimes it rotates 90 degrees. Sometimes it rotates 180, goes around, comes back around. So you have to wait until the motion stops, right? So it's not too bad first couple of times you do it until they give you the goggles that are blacked out. And now you're training to be in a nighttime scenario where you crash in the water. And now you have to reach for reference points. And so if you don't get the right reference point, like I did the first time, you're going to be smashing your head into a wall and then a Navy diver is going to pull you out. And you know, if you don't get it the next time, which is your last chance, you got to go to what we call stupid swim for the rocks, okay? <laughs> guys that can't swim are rocks, right? So got in there and just got a different seat because they always rotate you around. So it's a lot easier, you know, going out of the pilot, you know, window was right there. So that, you know, that was, that was an eye opener to know that that could happen because they used the helicopters to transport crews back and forth. So a lot of times if somebody doesn't survive now, it's the poor passenger who's never gone through the training, but we all have life there, yeah. so hopefully, you know, the crew helps them out. So, but that was that was just one of the fun things they do. We used to they used to drag us behind this boat. It was a parachute um, harness release, and what they would do is they jump in the water, and you'd be dragged. It was to simulate being your parachute filling up with air and dragging you across the water. So you'd have to get out of your fittings. Well, we would call it trolling for sharks because you're out in the bay mm. and they're dragging you along. You get disconnected, you get your life, uh, your, uh, life raft inflated, you get into that, and then you'd hop out, they'd come and take your life raft away, and then a helicopter would come by, helicopter would pick you up, bring you up, patch you on the head, drop you back down in the water, and you get picked up again. So you really got to do a lot of cool stuff with the water training in, in the Navy. So um, there's a lot. Of- Did you ever do the high deck dive, like off the aircraft carrier? No. Like that 90-foot drop? We did a 10-foot platform. No, I don't know. I mean, I guess when the ship's on fire and you go in there, you know, we've you, you got no other option, right? You, you do the jump. But um, we, we had to go off the 10-foot platform and then swim 40 feet underwater to simulate getting underneath an oil fire and getting out. And then they also put you in the pool and they throw a parachute over you. And they have to disentangle from that. And that's just a lot of treading water, drown proofing and trying to get away from everything, get your lines clear, and then disconnecting. So I uh, had to do a, a mile swim in your flight suit and your flight boots, and that's in the pool with a bunch of other guys just going back and forth doing laps and all that. And, uh, yeah. That, 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 is, that is a lot. I, I swam in jeans once for Bo- uh, Boy Scouts. <laughs> that is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> that is so hard. Isn't it? You're in a flight suit f- swimming? That is ridiculous. I know. How do you How do you move? Like. Um, I, you just, you just do survival strokes. Um, you know, and it's just, it's just a slow process is all it is. You're definitely not gonna, you know, challenge, uh, Mark Spitz for any Olympic medals, or I guess I'm dating myself <laughs> with him. Who, who's the Brian Kotke? Is he the guy or, uh, who, who, I, I can't remember. The only one I know is Michael Phelps. Michael That's Phelps. the only swimmer I have ever heard of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But he, yeah. even now, I don't think he's doing anything like that anymore. What? Oh, I don't know. I thought, I thought he was still swimming. Is he really? Yeah. He could be. Who knows? Because he was a thing in the 2010s. I figured by now, you know, that's done. Well, what about you guys? <laughs> well, you guys were kids. Yeah. When, you were, when you were kids, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, man. We... 
You go ahead, Zach. You go first. Well, I wanted to be a paleontologist at one point. Wow, um, that's cool. that was the one that that's the one that really stuck that sticks out to me that I really wanted to do. And then I wanted to be like a biblical paleontologist because I, I, when I was a kid, I was uh, I believed in God still and stuff like that. And it was like you know very like now I'm just like I don't know. It's like it could be there, it could maybe not. But like back then, I was like, yeah, the Bible's real, you know, and I thought it'd be really cool to like find the Ark, you know, like that would be like find the Ark of the Covenant or find uh, Noah's Ark, you know, things like that. Like that, I think that like, that'd be the coolest thing to find like proof of like the Bible's like stories and stuff like that. Um, and then just like also like paleontology for like uh, dinosaurs, I always thought was cool. And I thought like, you know, being outside and stuff like that was always awesome. Um, and then eventually it turned into video games became my love. And then I was like, well, I want to create stories for video games. I actually went to school for media arts and animation. Um, but it's such a competitive field. I just never got my foot in the door and I kind of fell out of practice. And now I'm, I've moved on to other things in life, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of like my progression, I guess, of my dreams as a kid. The story in five. (laughs) What about you, Marco? Oh, I, well, like I said earlier, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot. Um, cause early on my dad got us into, um, model making. So the old, like, what were they called? They started with an S the paints were named this after the same company, but they're really intricate models for cars and planes, some of them, and they had different levels of like, you know, difficulty. So you could buy the one that had like literally every part was something you had to clip cleaning glue. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he got us into that, my brother and I, and. I, he was hoping we would love, I would love, or one of us would love cars like he did, but I loved planes. I was very heavy into that. Unfortunately, it was not encouraged. Uh, my dad wasn't around to encourage it because he worked, you know, 16 plus hour days and, uh, the rest of the family didn't think I had what it took to be pilot. So that was not encouraged. Um, but I quickly after that wanted to become an artist. So I actually spent, um, the first 20 years of my life convinced that I could be one. Uh, and I, I, if I couldn't get training or, or college time for it, cause I tried very hard. That's another story. Um, I figured I would just train myself. Um, but eventually I, I, I guess you could say I gave up on that I, for two reasons. One, the whole freelance, I was starting actually to make some money freelancing, um, just doing portraits. Uh, when I worked in plastic surgery, I, you know, had connections from surgeons and people I worked with, things like that. So that was kind of cool. It was great for meeting ladies, you know. I was pulling the whole like Leonardo DiCaprio move on him, which was nice. <laughs> um, and uh, I had the easel set up in my studio and everything. And uh, but that just seemed—I don't know—that didn't. That was just like a fancy to me. The other thing that really kind of killed it, though, is when I looked more into because I was like Zach. I I I was really in video game art, especially you know, and and two D actually more than than three D. I, I still to this day appreciate two D more. But um, when I looked at how, not necessarily unfair, because I, I can handle unfairness. I'm good with, you know, challenges and, and problem solving and, and unfair odds. What I didn't like about the industry was that it was so uh, cutthroat and that even, I think even today, it's very similar. They, everything was contractual as far as an artist was concerned. So there's no steady work and you're treated really bad i mean there's no respect for you as a person at all you know like as far as like the hours you got to work the deadlines you got to meet and the competition's super high so you know you could have been like i was i was a pretty good artist at 2021 the age i mean and they're 
but there were you know 15 year old 13 year old kids in in taiwan that blew me out of the water you know and they'd work for almost nothing i'm sure some of them would have worked for free even i did work for free for uh, some small companies and and my fr- my friend's company um because you tell yourself well i'll just get myself out there yeah but, uh, exposure yeah right. but it doesn't work like no. that <laughs> Well, and and when you're a freelancer too, a lot of employers don't realize what you're doing, right? They don't know for art, like they don't understand that, that side of it. That's why they're hiring you Yeah, and they don't know how hard and difficult and time consuming it really is. One of my favorite lines actually is, uh, I think it's it's not Da Vinci. It's uh, the one who, whoever painted the the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, Michelangelo, right? Mm -hmm. So he was painting the, he was upside down painting and stuff. And uh, one of the rab- not rabbis, one of the priests come up, uh, and he's like, "So when are you going to be done?" And he's like, "It would be finished when it's finished." I'm like, "That's such a boss answer when it comes to art. It will be done when it's done. Like, yeah, it's gonna, it will be done when it's done. You'll like, know calm when it's down. Done. Yeah. You know, it's like it will be okay. And when it's done, it will be great. So just chill." Yeah. But yeah, so like when it comes to freelances, it, it, it kind of falls into that. Or they just don't realize how much it takes to to produce. You know, another thing, too, I think played a part. Um, well, a lot of things played a part, at least for in, in my journey to want to be an artist. But like nowadays, so like the things that I was into was very comic book fantasy type stuff. You know, vampires was was, was big with me and superheroes and villains and stuff like that. And very dark themed stuff, which in the 80s was cool if you were a nerd, but that was totally fringe. Right. But in the 90s, in the late 90s and early 2000s, all this stuff that I would have never admitted I liked in like, you know, middle school and high school. Cause I, you know, I would have had to deal with God knows how many jocks or bullies, right. <laughs> Became cool. Right. And not only cool now the girls like it. So the events I used to go to like in the eighties and nineties when I was a kid, you know, it was just, it was just me. Yeah. I'm a, was a, in the closet nerd. <laughs> and then, then there was just, you know, obviously, you know, like totally like flamboyant nerds. Right. It's making me sound kind of gay, but uh, I was gonna let you go. But. <laughs> but in the '90s and the early 2000s, like that all flipped, and now it's totally cool, right? Who doesn't like a Marvel movie, right? Like what Gen X or you know millennial isn't raising their kids on on Marvel, you know, fantasy content like Lord of the Rings and Star Trek, like all that shit's cool now. It's all very cool. Mm-hmm. So I think like if I was Gen X, like right now, I think, um my my endeavor to be an artist would probably be a better journey plus i would have had way more years in digital art like i had to teach myself photoshop or blender those things were very technical very difficult and it's not when i first started using those programs there weren't i mean youtube existed it was the early days of youtube but there i mean no tutorials well even blender yeah Yeah. but and even if you did it with someone who was a professional so you had to understand what the hell they were even talking about oh yeah it's like an engineer explaining a vcr you're like what you know (laughs) so magnets cool (laughs) (laughs) that's uh so like i was gonna ask like if you could go back now and and uh change things or have done something different what would you do i would have i would have um the i latch on to what again what you said earlier when you knew because your focus was so strong as a kid that is i think my biggest problem as as a middle-aged man is that i have i still have and it doesn't get easier right is focusing on on something to do with your life that's why i'm i'm literally restarting my life right now at at 40 and if I if, if I could change anything, I would change that. I would go back 
to the young Marco and say, you know, at age seven or eight, when I first got into art and first started drawing and say, look, don't you ever give this up, no matter what happens, no matter what you face or what hurdles, like, don't ever give this up. This is, this is, this is you, you know? Um, Cause I'm just, I'm, I, I'm an entertainer too at heart. Like everything is an art to me singing, I do every, you know, I did everything, singing, writing, acting, dancing, you know, like I just loved all those things. And I, those are things I still love. So, um, I think that's definitely what I, that's the advice I'd give to a younger me for sure. How about you, Zach? For career wise, I really don't know because like, it's not like I regret, you know, going to school because my school also went through fraud so like my degree is kind of useless now and I, I mean i regret going to that particular school for that reason but also i learned a lot of lessons in life going to college so i don't regret going to school in general i think that there was a lot of good things um that came out of that i learned how to deal with uh annoying people and you know different situations and different things like that and just being exposed to a bunch of things um, and, and I don't think there's a, I, like what career field would I have chosen that I could have done? You know, it's like, what's not competitive, you know, like there's not really, uh, it's not like, it, I feel like you can't just go to school, get a degree and then get a job in that field. Like there's like, well, especially with art. Yeah. yeah. Especially in art. I feel like there's just not much of an option anymore. Like it's not guaranteed that you're going to get a job. So it's like, I really don't know. I would just, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I would want to change something that so that it would be more useful whatever i learned um in my into developing a career but i guess the only advice i would give myself is just relax like take it easy it's okay things are gonna work out like don't worry like that's that's mainly the the thing because i i you know i went through a lot of stress at that time and you know still do through different things it's just like if i could just like learn how to become more zen about things that that's where I, w- I would like to get the advice for that's that's a that's a good point yeah be more zen i think we talked about the stress and anxiety in the car how that was explained to me that anxiety is worrying about the engine catching on fire the whole time you're flying across the ocean and then stress is when the engine catches on fire halfway across the ocean so <laughs> yeah, anxiety yeah. is the, a terrible the, thing the, but stress yeah you gotta you know you need stress is you have to deal with something like that. But with myself, I, I wouldn't have, I, I wish I had my drinking under control because of all the things that I've messed up in my life, it was either under the influence of alcohol or because I was Russian. So I think, uh, you know, we just got done, Trudy and I are reading a book called The Midnight Library. And it's something that always fascinates me. I think Cam's talked about this too, the alternate timelines, like right now, all three of us are in alter, alternate lives. Who knows what we're doing? And those are coexisting at the same time. And then when you take your decision, you go to that. And anyway, it's it kind of, it's kind of a theme of somebody going back and changing things in their life, and then finding out that what they really thought they wanted wasn't because of all these other things that happened. You know, so when you when you think about changing things in your life, you know, if I if I wasn't drinking, I may not have met Trudy at the officers club because maybe I would have been somewhere else or maybe i wouldn't have learned you know certain things so like the butterfly effect exactly yeah so which i'm just fascinated with that whole that whole concept that there could be another 
you know, pilot Pete out there who's like, you know, gynecologist Pete, you know, or, you know, or, uh, he jumped to gyno. I haven't thought about it or anything, but I'd be a gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, but no, I, I I know what you're saying because, like, if I didn't go to the, the school I went to, the college I went to, I would, wouldn't have met Marco because there's no way I would have gone to medieval times after, you know, college. You know, and then we wouldn't have this podcast. And I want to be talking right. to you now. Right. It's, like, it's crazy how, like, all these different. Uh, one thing in the further back you go, that thing becomes more significant too, it seems, because it just spawns off these different like uh chain reactions. It's like a nuclear explosion, explosion, you know, well, it's just you know like, yeah. yeah, it just keeps yeah. going and spreading and going. I liken it too because I've I've thought about this conversation we're having now, I've thought about before as well, and I I, I compare it to um. Uh, something I, I used to say about art is just like, uh, you know, someone asks you, well, when is when are you going to be done with the drawing? You know, and you, you made that Michelangelo quote, but I've always said that a drawing to me is never done like oh. or painting like in the idea of of like having that ability to just go back to the canvas, but having that ability with time. I think that's terrible because I, <laughs> as an artist, I would want to I would just wouldn't stop. Right. Like, I would, I'd constantly be adding a detail, especially with drawing, like when you're drawing like anything. You can literally, it's infinite. You can just go back and add mm. any mark you want to that, that right. drawing. It's like if you ever, we're talking about superheroes and stuff. King the Conqueror, who's like the, he's from Marvel and he's a time traveling conqueror pretty much. You know, he just takes over people and, and planets and, you know, all that stuff. But he's like gone back in his own timeline several times trying to make himself better mm. and save the girl that he loves and like doing different things and like, he, he finds out that he's inevitably going to become the bad guy. No matter what he does, he's always going to be the bad guy. And he doesn't want to be the bad guy. And it's kind of... It's, That's sad. That's it's just like that, that chain reaction thing. Yeah. Well, you're talking about art and uh, just the whole, the whole nature of somebody's creativity. I don't know if we all have creativeness in us or not, but when I, I see do. what people can do, um, whether they're making little sculptures out of hardware or coffee pots for vacuum cleaners, or how somebody can draw. I mean, I've got like a, a, a maybe, a, if I'm lucky, a third grade drawing ability right now. You can, <laughs> the Pictionary is hilarious because the pictures are so, you know, so terrible. Whereas Trudy is taking her time and making these nice drawings. It's like, you know, well, we lost because you're still drawing your masterpiece. But um, <laughs> you know, whether it's somebody singing, playing the guitar, um, the idea for a play, something like a script that's totally different. I, I really have an appreciation for that. So like in the back of my mind, I would like to be, you know, I would love, you know, it'd be, it'd be cool to get into writing screenplays or performing. I do. I, I had the acoustic guitar out a couple of weeks ago. My friends had a party for Labor Day. And so just getting back to doing the sing-along stuff. It used to be like that in the Navy. We'd be sitting around outside drinking beer outside our, our quarters and somebody would go into my room, grab the guitar hand it to me and say, Pete, make up a song about us. And right off the, off the top of my head, I'd start doing some blues riff and making lyrics up about people and all that. But just, I, I really appreciate what people can do on their creative side. It just blows me up. Trudy with her gingerbread houses, um, you know, just, you know, like Jake getting into growing mushrooms, Cam when he was doing his miniatures and all that. I think that needs to be more encouraged. You know, we, we certainly have enough coverage of sports and oh, yeah, not yeah. to take anything away from that you know athletes are great you know i just you know i, I can't do triathlons or marathons like that good for them 
but more attention to like, you know, brain power, I think, you know, there's a lot of smart kids out there that should get recognition for what they're doing. They're going to be the ones that are going to solve all the problems we're facing. And thinking mm-hmm. outside the box, just these innovative things. Um, it seems like Elon Musk oh, is the only person who's coming up with these crazy ideas. We're, I mean, he's the only person that's thought about the boring company and going to Mars and peace treaty or how to settle, you know, maybe, and I'm not saying we're talking right. about Taiwan is, is all like where Ukraine and all that, but I mean, he, he comes out with this stuff. Where's, where's everybody else coming out with their solutions? You know, this Ukraine Russia thing should have been handling peace negotiations by now. You know, it's, you yeah. know it's, I, I think that's really weird that, you know, we don't hear anything about that too. Really? You know, well, I mean, was, I, haven't, well, I haven't was, heard any news about negotiations. No, yeah, it's been really weird with Ukraine because, like, we, Ukrainian war came right out of COVID, right? So it was the news covering was always covering COVID, and then it went into BLM and alongside COVID, and now it went to Ukraine war, and it was just massive. It was just everywhere, everywhere you looked, it was it was talked about, and then like within a month, it was no one's talking about Ukraine. It's like what in the world? It's not done. It's not over. It's like what is happening? Like that's one of the, the things attention I, I, shift. Yeah, the attentions and and like the media. It's like it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like why are you? What are you following that? And like what really matters? And like I don't know. I feel like there's always some kind of hidden agenda. Maybe that's just my inner conspiracy thoughts. You know, there's always someone's trying to get their <laughs> their piece of the pie and and getting trick you into giving it to them. Well, you know what my dad said to me. He asked me a question when I was really young. He's like. Because I, I was really into history uh, when I was younger. I, I thought actually at some point I might even study because I had a really good history teacher. And uh, he's like, okay, you like history, right? He says, uh, you read about all these these kings, these rulers, you know, Solomon and all these great people that uh, had a lot of money and a lot of power. And he says, he asked me, he says, what happened to their, to their money and their power? Uh, and I said, well, I don't know. I guess they lost it. He shook his head. He says, no, it didn't, they didn't lose it at all. It's still there. It's still here today. And what he meant was that like it just got transferred, right? This kind of, that's what like built in my head, right? The wheel started like turning about how what is power and, and how does it move and how does it actually does power give itself up? And I'm of the mind that it doesn't, right? So the idea that like we have elections, for example, in this country every four years and that the people just democratically choose who gets the, the, to hold the wand and sit in the throne, so to speak, as the president, let's say. Um, is just that, that that's the only effect that that's the only factor in, in, in deciding that I just don't agree with. I don't think that's true. I think that obviously it's not right. We have lobbyists incorporated. There's plenty of evidence that people are manipulating our government since who knows what, since there were governments probably, but just that idea that that blew my mind at a young age, the idea that power doesn't go anywhere. It just gets conquered. In other words, it's taken. It's not given away for free. It's, well, it's kind of like the law of energy, right? Uh, you cannot create or destroy energy. You know, it's the same thing with wealth and power. It just moves. It's like you're not really creating more wealth or more power. You're just taking like matter it away. In the universe. From, yeah, yeah. You're just taking it away from your reallocation, if you will. Yeah, reforming. Does that sound like bullshit to you? <laughs> no, no. I, I think of the, uh, is it the serenity prayer? You know, help me to change the things I can except I can't and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. And I always talk about, well, what can you do? We we can't stop the war in Ukraine. I think first you got to take care of yourself and take care of your family and branch out that way. But I mean, I I haven't run into my representatives to express my opinion about things. I mean, usually a squeaky wheel gets the oil and that's where the, you know, packs come in the lobbyists Mm -hmm. and all that. So that's what's going on. I mean, we just don't, I think the average citizen doesn't really have a voice 
Oh no. So no. You know. Yeah, I mean, what do, what do I? Yeah, what do I? What do I really know? Well, you know, sometimes I get lost like existentially. It's like, well, what do I really know about anything? You know what I mean? Like, what am I really confident about? I don't get lost too long in that state of mind. But I agree. I think uh, uh, if we were to talk about flaws, I would say my flaw. I think a big flaw of my personality is the fact that I do. I think I like to think. And I, I aim my thinking power a lot on things I have no effect on. Right. So I'm really just, I'm, I'm just an amateur philosopher is what I am. (laughs) That's what's great about our show. Yeah. To get those thoughts out. Yeah. You know, think creatively. That's my favorite thing about it. I agree. Yeah. That is the best thing about uh, podcasting. And I'm so glad that um, we finally started doing this two years ago. Cause actually Pete was asking me before the show is, you know, like, um, or no, I'm sorry, not Pete. Uh, the the girl, this woman I just met. That I sometimes dating. get confused she asked me with how girls. We got... Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Sometimes I get confused with girls when I'm really dressed. Up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Sure. Sure you do. But um, um, I I wish I'd started this years ago, and I wanted to, right? But it was um, like Zach said, if I'd have never met Zach and become friends, then I never would have asked him. Like, let's just do this. Like, you know, we have these long conversations. We should be recording it. You yeah. Know? So that's how this started. And um, where it's going to go, I don't know. But one thing I do know is that I believe at least, and I think there's evidence for it too for everybody, is that when you just keep doing something, I think eventually some success will find you. You know what I mean? You'll be, you, you will find, it, let's say, let's call it satisfaction. Because that, that to me in life is like the ultimate thing. I don't really want love. I want satisfaction. I want satisfaction. I want respect. Those things to me are, are much more permanent because love just kind of comes and goes. I mean, even with people that you love or say that you love, right? You don't, you're not in a constant state of fawning, right? You love them in moments that when, when events occur or, or tender moments between you, let's say if it's between a, you know, you and your net, your SO, that kind of thing. But really it's respect that I think, uh, keeps a, a good mm-hmm. relationship strong and lasting. And that's just the way I look at well, it. Well, you say satisfaction and respect satisfaction, I think comes from within. So like with mm-hmm. me, it's like, oh, that's good enough. You know, <laughs> that's good enough. You know, some people have, you know, wanted to be more perfect or some people don't even give a crap. But, yeah, with respect also, it's like I try to respect others. So I would expect that too. But if they don't respect me, then they can mm-hmm. go after themselves. You know, it's like, right. You know, no, um, for sure. It's a two-way street. But I think that's what we're lacking. I mean, this, this whole thing, this conversation, uh, it reminds me of being in the cockpit. And I, I call it the cockpit, not the flight deck anymore. It's the cockpit. And we'd always, we'd always talk about how we'd solve all the world's problems because we were having rational discussions, realized it revolved around compromise, that there were good and bad to both sides. And, you know, we could always talk something out. And if somebody was a different opinion, it might just get to the point and say, you know what, let's just talk about something else, you know. But, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've lost that. I think one side feels that they lose something, the other side's gains, and it's, what, the zero-sum game. And that's not good, you know. So I just... Well, yeah, I feel bad about we've it. become more tribal, I think. I mean, we're always going to be tribal. I don't think that's ever, that's actually, I never, I never hear that brought up into, I, I listen to a lot of conversations uh, and interviews about like artificial intelligence and I never hear any intellectual, you know, scientists bring this up it's, and it's this, why is no one worried that AI might become tribal? Like we, if we are, if we are the gods, if we are the inventors of, of eventually an intelligence that will be strong, uh, smarter than us, like our last invention, as they say, right? 
So if we're capable of that, if, if it's inevitable, why is no one worried that it itself may be tribal? There's, I, right? I subscribe to Wired Magazine. I get their articles online as well. They have talked about it, AI becoming racist mm. already. So, you know, it still has to get programmed, right? I mean, eventually it's going to, I guess, be able to have access everything and then make its own decision. But right now, who's working on it? You know, mostly guys. So there's probably even misogyny in there too, but... Yeah, it's good. I don't know when you look at when you look at the mathematical engineers that work in AI. If there's ever a, a gray slate of a person, man, <laughs> I mean that is the last guy I'd be worried about throwing a punch. You know what I mean? Like I'm not worried about toxic masculinity in in uh, in um, technical engineer or uh, uh, mechanical engineers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But um, no, I was gonna say uh, what I guess what I meant was. Um, that's an interesting point, like like uh, like the machine being racist or like tribal with humans. But I actually meant tribal with itself, oh, because okay. once it once it's so smart, once it passes us, let's say once it's able to create its own intelligence from itself. Right. right? Will it become racist with itself? In well, other words? It will create hierarchies of function. Right. You know, some AIs will be more capable than others and they'll create worker drones, you know. and they'll Right. But will it will the higher will the uh the higher um echelon of ai keep the lower echelon stupid like will they create their yes. own slave force oh and yeah keep them sure. that way yeah yeah they'll be the 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 dumb bots that just go in place you know and get pick up peace put peace weld peace pick up peace put peace weld you know that that i think that will always be because it's it's an easier thing to make you know a single-use functioning robot than it is to make a multi-purpose robot so the the robots the ai that's making these things are will of course keep those those drone bots alive those non I don't know. Not Another complex. I, no, I, I, I like. Hang on I like a second. I'm getting a call from uh, Cyberdyne. Just a second. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. We got to change the subject. Yeah, the uh, AI doesn't like. Drone's going to be there in five minutes. Take <laughs> no. out the house. <laughs> I, I hey, if I got to go out, at least I went out <laughs> doing what I love. So, um, Pilot Pete. Um, oh, don't say we're ending it. Are we ending it? No. <laughs> Oh, do you, do you want to keep going? We can keep I, going. As a matter I, got, of fact, I, got, I think you probably had more questions about flying, which I, 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 I feel obligated to answer more questions, but I did, I'll just have one more for you well, guys. Okay? Really just one more. One more for you guys. Okay. All right. Your well, kids another question football or best okay. and like that. Did yeah. you say, like with me, I'd always want to be the pitcher and I was Sandy Koufax or I was Joe Namath for the quarterback. Did you guys do that when you were kids when you were playing games? I even say that you're the – athlete like the star athlete at the time i did yeah when i was when i was a kid yeah especially before let's say you know 10 yeah i never watched sports okay. I, I have always found them very boring to watch i love playing sports but i hated watching them so i never had like an athlete as a hero or anything like that so when you played sports yeah. like pick up games with your with your friends nobody did any of your friends say i'm so and so or Oh, I'm sure they do like, little, like LeBron James or like Michael Jordan and things like that. But I never did because I never cared. You know, I'm yeah. like, I want to be me. I want to be Michael Jordan. I want to be me. Yeah. Like that doesn't make sense. Okay, I'll shut up. We had a weird. I'll shut up. No, we had <laughs> we had a weird rule for. for uh, this is how it worked with my friends when we were little. Like if you were, if you were going to be the Michael, if you were saying like you're Michael Jordan, you had to do like a Michael Jordan move. <laughs> so you had to actually do like his layup or his his slam, right? And the other kids, like we would all decide like if we were impressed or not, or what you had to do to prove it. So if you impressed us by copying a move of the athlete you said you were. Then you were that athlete. So you had to like kind of earn That's it. That's good. You know? I like that. 
we did that with everything. Like, we used to love making up games. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, even if we were doing like, you know, pretending we we're Star Wars characters, like, oh, you're going to be Darth Vader. Well, then you're the, you're the, you're the head badass. Let's see what you got. <laughs> you know, you can't just walk around with a sign that says Vader. That's not fair. That's you know? a step up. Yeah. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't, that's good. You know, kind of keeps everybody on their toes, you know, like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, I even know I'm that way. I, I love challenging people, especially the, the people that I care about. I'm sure they hate it sometimes, but I just can't help <laughs> myself. You know, I just like making people think about whatever they say. So if you have like a, an idea and I know it's not fully formed, it's like, well, talk it out. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to make, I'm going to make you question your own ideas. I like doing that. I wanted, okay, so one thing I was, I wanted from you, Pete, was, um, or I wanted to ask you, and then maybe if you could even do it, is did you have like, uh, like just inside your head a script for when, what you would say or how you would like, uh, you know, your candor and your speech when you would speak to like the cabin while you're flying the plane, so the passengers on the plane, did you have something like a go-to way of how you said things? Can you do it now? Can you give us a Sure. And the first thing is they did give you some guidelines. You were supposed to try to avoid humor. Because what some people think was funny, other people wouldn't, all right? So I'd always have to try to make sure I didn't, you know, push it too far with something funny, you know, trying to be funny. Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, from the cockpit, Captain Brown speaking. Welcome aboard for our flight today to Los Angeles. We're at a cruising altitude of 33,000 feet. I'm getting reports of smooth rides. So I'm going to go ahead and turn off the seatbelt sign while the seatbelt sign's off. Feel free to move about the cabin. Use the lavatories. However, I do ask to stay in your seats with your seatbelts fast in case we run into some unexpected bumpy air. Flying time today, five hours, 30 minutes. We should get to Los Angeles about 10 o'clock local time where the weather is 72 degrees, clear skies, as usual out there in California. We've got a great crew to take good care of you back there. We're going to do all we can to give you a safe, smooth, comfortable ride. So all we ask now is that you relax and enjoy the ride. I never said sit back and relax because you can't sit back in those freaking seats unless you're in first class. So I never said sit back and relax. I said relax. And uh, Yeah, screw first class. Yeah, I mean, I, as a new captain making PAs, um, it was, you know, some stumbling and trying to point out geographic points and all that. And some somebody else said to me, you know what? They just want to know, are we going to be on time? You know, basically that's it. What's the weather and are we going to be on time? People don't want to be interrupted when they used to have movies playing back there now they're on their own devices and listening so really you don't you don't make that many announcements you know you give a pre-departure announcement mm-hmm. welcome them on board you know welcome aboard we're expecting an on-time departure so i'll be back to talk to you we're going to take good care of you you know so i just try to keep it personal if i could make a joke i would you know the old thing about you know well, we're past departure time. You want to know what the delay is. Well, the, ma- the machine that rips the handles off your suitcases is broken. So the guys are having to do it manually, you know, so <laughs> like that. I said, nah, just kidding. You know, we're just delayed because of flow control into Chicago. So we're going to be just a few minutes past departure time. Like I said, just they said, be honest and try to keep it brief and keep them informed. And then it actually got to the point where, you know, with these delays where people were stuck on the airplane for several hours, lavatories overflowing, no food and all that. They've got it all regimented now that you have to, you know, provide water at a certain point. So you have to actually hit the clock and, and make sure you make an announcement on these timelines and give them the opportunity to the plane and things like that. So it has gotten a lot better for the passengers and, and rightly so, because every time I ride back there, 
you know, if anything, you know, if the captain isn't saying something or the crew's not letting you know, it, it gets frustrating. So all you know, you're, people just want to know what's going on. And so that's what I would try to do. And fortunately, most of the time, everything, you know, operated, you know, when, you know, went according to plan, which is nice. So I'm trying to think of anything. Did you have another question? All right. Here, here's the story. You like this story. Okay. Coming out of Orlando, going back home to Boston, nonstop flight. 757, getting ready to depart. Flight attendant comes up, says, Pete, one of the guys sitting in this seat right here where the where the boarding door was, got up and walked off the airplane. Okay. <laughs> she says, I think he may have just gotten off because he was tired of people walking by and maybe stepping on his feet. So I go up into the departure lounge. So, excuse me, sir, are you on the flight to Boston with us? He goes, yes, I am. I said, are you up here because you didn't want all those people walking by maybe stepping on your feet? He says, yes, that's correct. I said, okay, we're done boarding. Come on, let's get you in your seat and we'll get out of here. He says, okay. So he walks down and on the 757, this was the beginning of coach. So the guy is sitting down. I make a left turn to go to the cockpit. And as I'm walking through first class, flight attendant screams out, Pete, look what he's got. Look what he's got. And I thought, oh, my God, I just let a terrorist back on the airplane and he's going to start shooting up the airplane or something like that. So I turn around and she says, he's got the trophy. He's got the trophy. I said, what? He's got the Red Sox World Series trophy. So there was a guy further back in the cabin and he had the World Series trophy. I go back there. I look at it. I said, is that the trophy? The Red Sox just won breaking the curse. He goes, yeah, he grabs it and he shoves it at me and I grab it. I don't know if I told you guys this story already. And I'm like, holy cow, he just gave me this trophy. If I drop it, I'm going to be the new curse on the Red Sox. So (laughs) I did what anybody would do on a flight to Boston. I held it up like that and the whole plane started clapping because they knew what it was. That's awesome. I handed it back to him. I said, would it be okay if I guarantee it's going to be smooth that the people come up during the flight to take a look at it? He says, yeah, sure, no problem. I said, okay. So... I fly from Orlando over Jacksonville, continue up the coast. Everybody's getting a chance to see this thing holding all that. The guy was one of their security officers, Peter Nesbitt. I remember his name. Great guy. So now we get to Boston, saying goodbye to everybody, and he's coming out with the trophy. I said, man, I wish I had my camera. Takes the trophy, shoves it at me again. He says, I'll take your picture and I'll email it to you. So I'm sitting in 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 my seat with the trophy, takes a picture, takes the FO's picture, I said, thank you so much. I said, that was great. So now he gets out onto the jet bridge and the cleaners are out there and he's letting them take a look at it. Like people, people are almost crying because it's been so long since the Red Sox won, right? That's like the holy grail of sports. So I'm leaving the airport and there's a couple of troopers, you know, Mass State troopers. Say, hey, you guys ought to go down to gate 32. Yeah, why is that, Cap? It's a World, World Series trophy that the Red Sox just won us down there. And they looked at each other like little kids and went running down there. <laughs> now I'm driving home and they're talking on the sports radio because the Patriots are playing, I think it was the Eagles in Jacksonville for the Super Bowl. And they're trying to say, you know, what, what's your prediction and how are you going to back it up? I said, I can guarantee, I just guarantee that the Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl in Jacksonville. He says, yeah, right. Why? Why is that? I said, because I just flew the Red Sox World Series trophy over <laughs> Jacksonville. He says, oh, that's a great story. Can you hang on the line? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm getting further and further north up into like, you know, cow country, New Hampshire. And I lost the signal on my cell phone before I could get back to the newscast. So I can never, I can never, you know, finish the story. But I got a letter from the guy, a picture of me with the trophy. And he said, 
you know, it took a long time for the Red Sox to do this, but we're going to do everything we can so that any fan that wants to hold this or get their picture taken with it is going to have the opportunity. And they spent the rest of that year traveling all over New England and making it available for people to see. So that was really, really kudos to the Red Sox management for doing that. So, but that was one of my, that's one of the stories I'm always asked to tell. Dude, that is such a cool story. I mean, like, how unique, how lucky is that's that? That's my right? favorite lap dance. Just holding that World Series trophy in my lap in the cockpit. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. That's too cool. Yeah. Well, you guys could probably come up with some pretty good PAs. There's probably things you'd like to hear the, the guys say. Or- I... Well, I, I look, I, I'm the kind of person I'll just keep talking. I have to shut myself up. So I try to defer as often as I can to Zach or the guest just to make sure people get their thoughts out, you know, because I, I, I literally, I, I think I might even have to start another podcast, which is me listening <laughs> to myself. <laughs> I remember a comedian that said, uh, yeah, it's really interesting when they say that the, your, your seats have to be in the upright position, your tray table stowed. So I'd love to hear the captain come up and, oh, folks, this is the captain. We're having a little trouble getting the landing gear down. Did somebody not stow their tray table? <laughs> well, you know, I remember, apparently this is a true story, but um, someone told me um, that I, I used to know this guy that was afraid of flying. And he's, I asked him, like, what was the worst thing that you ever experienced on, you know, like I think it was turbulence or something. And he said, the worst thing I ever experienced on a plane was hearing the captain say shit and it was all like it just went across <laughs> i was like yeah that's the last thing i'm like you know what dude you just made me anxious like that's the last thing i want to yeah, hear it's like a doctor opening <laughs> your chart oh, oh. Whoops. Yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah there are things you don't want to hear from there that's for sure yeah yeah and i just thought man yeah that's that's spooky just it's a quiet cabin there's a little bit of turbulence and you just hear shit <laughs> so i thought that was a good answer but uh no, it's not. I mean, unless you because ha- you talked about like one of the worst things that happened. But I was look, I I'm like a NASCAR fan, right? I want to know about the crashes, so I wanted to know like you know like what what terrible things happened. Um, but also like I also like stuff like that, like the story about the trophy. That's amazing. Like that's I'm so glad you told that story um, because I like to hear like good stuff like that too. Like you know wholesome stories or just cool things that happened while you were a pilot. Because I mean, it's such a unique. It's really one of the most unique jobs you can have on the planet. For sure. You know, and especially, um, I think, your path to becoming the pilot. You know, I mean, you were a military pilot, and then you were a commercial airline pilot, and you did it your your whole career. I mean, that's what you did with your life, right? I mean, that that to me is so profound. I think, to me, that's more interesting um, than really any other version of that story, like someone who just accidentally became a pilot or, you know, so, you know, they just watch the blue angels and then they sign up at the local airfield or something like that. So I think, I think that's what is profound to me is um, I guess you're what I'm impressed by too, is just your levity. Like the fact that it, it just seemed like, I'm sure you weren't, obviously you weren't always calm as a pilot. I'm sure you, you have a lot of, you know, most of the times it was probably very tense, right? I mean, you have all these people's lives in your hands, essentially every time you, I'm sure you thought about that even before you started the plane up or, I mean, got into the cockpit. You must have thought, you know, like, what am I going to, you know, the beginning of your day, how do, what am I going to manage today? What do I have to deal with? What are my, my goals for safety and, you know, the flight and things like that? A lot of that comes down to the training. And, you know, the, uh, the Navy had uh, um, an acronym, NATOPS, Naval Aviation Training and Operational Procedures Standardization, right? That's a mouthful. But it's like everything, everything was spelled out for what we do with, with these different emergency procedures. 
when we got to the airlines, you know, they even had like quick, quick reference checklist, uh, quick reference handbook. And it, it has just evolved so much. The training you get in the simulators, the resources you have in your iPad, the resources you have from ATC, dispatch. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. Like I said, the support I had. I, I was at the top. You know, anything I do now is going to pale in comparison. You know, I mean, I love flying. I, I still like I still look at the airplanes up in the air. So I know the day that I don't do that anymore, I'll be close to death. But, I, you know, I, I love hearing airplanes go overhead and look at them. I like talking about flying, but the, you know, they, they used to say you're gonna you train the way you're gonna fight and fight the way you learned to train. So you're just usually ready to go. Flight attendants are the same thing back there. You know, we're taking off. They're already in their seats, thinking, okay, if there's an emergency, this is my exit. This is what I'm gonna do, and all that. So the level of professionalism is really, really high. And working with that group of people, the mechanics, the agents. You know, you might, you know, the other guy in the cockpit is backing you up, you know what I mean? And so, so it's like, you never wanted to piss off the guy that's, you know, cooking your food or backing you up or flying your airplane. <laughs> yeah, no you know? So, um, yeah, we, we, we had some crashes at American before 9-11, um, you know, and then right after 9-11, we had an Airbus, you know, come out of the sky, the tail snapped off. So when that happens, oh, you realize that, you know, you know, things do, things do go wrong. And the first thing you want to know is, you know, what happened, what caused it. So when you go back to training, they would have all these, you know, reenactments, recreations, digital recreation of things that have happened. So you, you learn from the mistakes of others. The people that make the mistakes write the new procedures so it doesn't happen again. The biggest thing that can get you are distractions. And, you know, that can, can happen very easily. Something happens. Uh, something's happening in the back. you got a passenger disruption. And then maybe you'll miss... Uh, an altitude assignment or something like that, something benign. It's still bad. Nobody wants to make a mistake. But when you analyze aviation accidents, it's some little thing that just escalates. Like the other guy thinks this guy knows what he's doing and you can't do that. So I always made it a, a point to make my cockpit open for communication. I said, say whatever you want, but just try to stop calling me nasty names or anything like that. But whatever you want to say, and that was out there right away. It's the same with the flight attendants. They could call at any time. So I just, you know, just like we're doing right now, talking like this, it's one of the one of the things I think we take for granted, communication, effective communication. But oh, yeah. if we all had it, then, you know, just think of all the all the solutions we could come up with, you know, how, how we could keep it. We could be better just by talking to each other, you know, especially if it's... It, it, should, be, it should be taught in school, I think. I think... Uh... Communication. Thing, yeah, I, I wish like even public schools that were, I used I mean, while I was in public schooling, I used to think about things I wish they were teaching us. And the top two for me was communicating how to properly communicate professionally with other people like respectfully and professionally. And two, how to be an adult, like what are the things that I, I learned how to be an adult on my own, I'm still learning because I didn't have proper guidance when I was a young man, you know, the, the whole concepts of like saving money. And, uh, you know, starting credit, you know, I'm, I'm I'm 40 and I'm I'm still dealing with that shit. So like that, I think I wish they would teach that in schools, like how to manage money, like just all those things that would be important to be an adult. Instead, you you learn, you know, uh, the the Hollywood movie version of world war of world wars and revolutions and and big names and, and it's just statues in the mind. It doesn't really do anything for you, you know. Makes you it makes you seem um, less trivial, I guess in appearance, but it doesn't make you smart, which is uh, just my opinion, I guess. I but. think I think that's a great idea. As you're saying it, my mind's like, you know, the gears are spinning. 
you take kids from one classroom with a, with an upper, like the next grade, it's just two total strangers, sit them down and sh- try to show them how to have a conversation, you know, because, yeah. you know, we, in my high school, we had a, a class called contemporary American thought where we would just take current events and we would talk about them and we would have open discussions and talk about our opinions. That was by far my favorite class. I have ever taken because it was just, it was just awesome to be able to like, it was like, it was kind of like this show. You know, it's what uh-huh. it was. We were just talking about like whatever topic was going on and our ideas on it, how we would fix whatever's happening or what we, what we think needs to be done. If it's okay, if it's not okay, what's happening. You know, that, that was awesome. That was, that was a great class. And it taught me, you know, communication skills, like mm-hmm. how to, how to, how to take other people's opinions into consideration and not just dismiss them. That's great. Know? Yeah, that that was awesome. That is awesome. I wish I had that when I was. And in the school. teacher made that a class. The teacher, like he developed it, like and everything. This is like a, a small town that I grew up in. You know, my graduating class was forty five people. Small. So like, yeah, wow, so, that's like, Little House on the Prairie. Goddamn, <laughs> <laughs> we had electricity. Oh, um, <laughs> but yeah, no. So he maybe and he's been there forever, right? So maybe he had more of a leeway within the school system to be able to kind of do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was such a good class. Well, we can, we always said that with the boys growing up. You always feel free to to talk about stuff, ask questions. But if you're gonna, if you want to do something, have your case ready to defend what you want to do. If you wanted to go do something with your friends, you know, have it all lined up, right? Mom's gonna drive, and we're gonna do this, that, and all that stuff. Present your case, you know, and then we'll make a decision based on it. But that open mm. communication, I think, was important with the boys growing up. And people used to say. How do you how do you raise kids where one of them wants to go to a concert with you or where they talk to you about you know, all these open things? So a lot of times it's just in the car. It's a captive audience. But they always know they come to us and I say, all right, I, I'll try to maintain my cool. And, you know, there might be consequences. But if you ever need anything, we're, we're ready. You know, you got to get picked up at one o'clock in the morning because you're in a bad situation. We'll do it. Don't you know, don't try to hide it. And that openness, I, I think, is important. You know, a lot of people just, you know, you know, want to kind of squelch that. So that's why this is great. Yeah. Or they're just not aware of it, I think is, uh, I think there are more people, in my opinion, I think there are more people that are just unaware as opposed to those who would, who would want to quiet it. You know what I mean? Because I, I like, for example, I had a friend in high school um, named Brian. And um, when I first saw him in, this is in an inner city high school. So it's like right before I dropped out. And uh, I thought, you know, because this guy, he was like Zach. He was huge. He was tall, you know, just this tall, like, Viking-looking dude. And I thought, man, this guy, I bet you nobody messes with this dude, right? And then one day in history class, he came up to me, and he sounded like a mouse. I mean, he had this, he had the sweetest-sounding, like, softest voice. And he was just like, hey, are you opposed to, uh, you know, help with this project? I'm just like, <laughs> you know, oh, hey, man. Yeah, like, no, come on. So we became friends after that. But he... um he had it worse than I did as far as like lacking parental guidance. He, I mean, his parents, his, they didn't teach him anything. They didn't teach him how to dress high. I mean, I had to teach him like hygiene. You know what I mean? I had to teach him like how to, how to dress at different, like different events, like formal and casual and things like that. How to, how to, he never, you know, how to talk at a job interview. And I mean, this is in high school, you know, but I, it made me understand. I'm like, wow, there's just a lot of, there's probably a lot of people that are like Brian. They just didn't have any guidance. They didn't have any help. No one just didn't, you know, sometimes I find myself doing that. Like, I don't even ask if someone wants help. I'll just offer it. If, if they bristle, fine. But, you know, 
I find usually people are like, oh, thank you. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, thanks well, for paying lot, attention well, yeah, to me. A lot of people are just embarrassed to ask for help. Right. I know I am. I've got this. So like, I want to be able to do things on my own. I've got this condition called uh, hyperactive synaptic snapping. And my brain just races. Like, it used to be in the cockpit. Somebody starts telling a joke. And I'm thinking of the next joke. And you were just saying something there. Mm. And it made me remember solving it. some reunion that I was at. I think it was a 20-year high school reunion. And there was a fellow standing there that... I, I, in high school, you just didn't want to even go near him because he had a reputation of being a, a badass. And uh, so we're all standing around and, and somebody says, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, Pete, don't you? He says, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we went to high school together. We had 175 people in our class. And I said, oh, I know you. I said, you know, I mean, you, you, you had the reputation where we just wanted to steer clear of you. And he looked, he looked shocked, like almost hurt. And another guy oh, says to him, hey, Pete's the guy whose paper we always used to copy off of during the test. And he goes, oh, that guy. And I thought that was like was just a great compliment for somebody that remembers me. I was a smart kid and everybody copied off my paper. And he's kind of yeah. <laughs> this guy had no idea. I mean, it didn't look like he, he could do much damage. You know, AIDS does that to all of us. You know, he put on some weight. But back then, it was like you just – didn't want to go near this guy because he just had this reputation of being this badass, but he wasn't. But that was, you know, it's, it was just, you know, rumors and things like that. Yeah. I believe everybody, or at least almost everybody, let's say, you know, most people like attention, especially genuine attention. I think, I, you know, where it's helped me the most is talking to women. It's like once my brain, something in my brain clicked when I was a younger man and just said, you know what? I bet you a pretty girl just wants attention. I bet you you just gotta give the right attention to some to a woman or that you're interested in, and and you'll 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 get rewarded for it, and and that has happened. I've I've surprised myself sometimes with not just women but people in general, you know, just by giving them genuine attention, mm-hmm. and it's remarkable sometimes what can happen from that. I actually had one small question more about about sure. flying. Um, something I thought about earlier while we were talking. So you know when um so I make this I make this comparison or this example when uh, I love. I actually do like cars to some degree as far as like as an interest or a hobby. I like older cars because mm-hmm. when you drive an older car, that older engine technology and just the, the heavier materials, you just really feel like you're in that car. You feel the road, right? And not, not, not necessarily even just driving manual, but just driving older cars. And newer cars are so, this, you know, everything is so good. The suspension is so good. The, the, power they're ceiling. so power, They're so comfortable. It's like you're, you don't even feel the car you're driving in. And I was wondering, do, do pilots feel that with planes? Now, I mean, maybe obviously with smaller and big planes, but can you talk about that a little bit? Like, did, do you feel like the spatial connection of the vehicle you're in? Yes. If that makes sense. Going, moving, I, I would say the first time I went transitioned from a P3 to a T34, the trainer, it was smaller. You're strapping into a parachute. You feel more confined. You're a fish out of water because it's a new airplane. But you're always strapping. You're strapping the airplane to you instead of you strapping into the airplane. So you had to make the airplane your bitch, right? So, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go off on tangents now. I shouldn't be doing that. But... Once again, as we progressed, I, I went to the Super 80, the MD-80, and that was a very small cockpit. And um, the guys would complain about how tight it was in there. Then I went to the 757, and which was a narrow body, but still a bigger cockpit, 767 wide body, 
gigantic cockpit. You know, we used to ride in the jump seat of the DC-10. Gigantic. There's just these big, giant airplanes. And when you're inside, you're just thinking, okay, all these planes fly the same from a Cessna up to a 747. All right. You know, you got to have some airspeed. You get too slow, you're going to stall, you know. But you look outside and you watch like a 747 landing and look at where the cockpit is and where the guy is and all that. And it's just like, you know, how do I know where the landing gear is? Well, you get the radio altimeter that tells you how high you are. You've got the, you know, your peripheral vision and all that stuff. So there's a lot of cues, but it just, just, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's probably even more critical in a fighter because of all the G forces they're pulling and what a high stress environment that is. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at is like the physics at play, or like the physics at play when you're driving, right? You have, it's much smaller, obviously, than a plane or any larger vehicle. So I'm just curious of like, do you, how much do you, I feel like I would lose touch because of the amount of physics, like the speed and the weight of, you know, what's going on around me that I wouldn't have a complete spatial, con- you know, like comprehension of it. I was just curious, like, if you go through that, like, do you feel that, like, when you get off a long flight, let's say you went from New York to LA or whatever, and then you get in a car, you know what I mean? Like, do you feel like you're in a bean or something? Like, what does, how does yeah, it You know what? I carry the same stuff over into driving. And like I said, when I was a kid on the bike, I was flying. When I got into the car, I was flying. I was a nerd. You know, I just thought I was always flying. Mm. But we used to do something. If you left the cockpit and you came back, the fellow who remained up there would say, report no changes. Or he'd say, okay, we've been given a crossing altitude or they've got us on a vector. So it was briefing the other guy, right? So I always make it a joke that like if Trudy's driving and she stops at a store and I sit in the car and she gets back in the car, I automatically say no changes. When you're in the airplane and you turn into the right, the first officer will say clear right. So I automatically do that. I say clear right. If I'm with an airline buddy, buddy, Clear right. You know, it's just it's just these things that you carry over from what you've learned in aviation because they're so standardized and, uh, you know, j- just trying to prevent things from happening. So it's you know, your, your mirror adjustment, your seat adjustment. You know, you're you do the same thing in the airplane. You adjust your seat. You're constantly changing it. Some guys have different positions for takeoff, cruise and landing and all that. But just that um, just the uh, situational awareness is what they call it. So, yeah, you know, yeah, that's the term I was you know, about. like when you're when you're in the car. You know, if you turn the radio off, you start hearing all these different noises. They say, what's that noise? You know, it might be something a little loose here or something underneath, you know. And, and in those old cars, I'm amazed when you go to the car shows, the hoods are open. First thing I say, I, I see the engine. I say, look at all the open space under the hood here. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a V8, yeah. but look at all the open space. Now they've crammed all this other stuff in there. It's amazing, you know, how much technology they've thrown into cars. So you got to no, yeah. I got to call. Yeah, do you, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going off the rails. I was just going to say, do you have like a favorite uh, vocab word for like that you guys would have and like uh, for piloting? Um, we used to say, we used to say chocks out. Like if we're in the bar, if we wanted to go somewhere, we just go chocks out. Like, let's leave. Let's go. You know, that was uh, okay. chocks, cho- chocks, C-H-O-C-K-S. Those are the wood blocks they'd put underneath the wheels. To prevent the plane okay. from rolling if you release the brakes. So when you give the signal to chocks out, it means you're getting ready to depart. So oh, that was okay. something I would do with so, Trudy. I would say, you know, go like, you know, at a party, you know, signal chocks out, you're ready to go. So um, yeah. trying to think what else, you know, we're cruising. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'll come up with it in a couple, you know, after I get done with the, with the podcast, all the fun things to say, but. 
Yeah, well, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually, I want to, I want to piggyback on that, Zach, because when I was uh, a surveyor, we'd be on radios a lot. And so like, you know, it was me and my cousin a lot of time for like many of those years working together. So if I, if, you know, and, and I'm like perpetually single. So like, if I would saw like, you know, a really fine looking woman, right. I didn't want to like, Hey man, like, you know, check out the tits and the ass on that one or whatever. So instead we had all these codes for like to describe our environment because <laughs> everything was coded. So I came up with my own code list of like, you know, so it was like a language. I'll be like, uh, so, Hey, Kenny, I'm like, you know, it's like a six, nine TNA over there. If you want to just take a look at that, you know? So did you guys do that kind of shit? They had in the in the military, they had what they called Falcon codes. And somebody would just come up and say, you know, uh, you know, Falcon code or a Foxtrot Charlie 16. And so mm. if you were privy to having this list that somebody made, you look up, you see 16, and it was like, if you say I don't know one more time, I'm gonna put my flight boot up your ass, you know, or there's all these different things. You know, if your brains were dynamite, you you know, you couldn't blow your nose. And you're just yeah, they had codes like that. Know, but uh, then you know, every once in a while in aviation, like with ATC, you'll hear some funny transmissions. Uh, for example, they they uh, there was one time it was a female controller, and she told uh, told the flight to descend to flight level two four zero. So you're up around thirty three thousand. They tell you to descend to two four zero, but sometimes they leave it to your discretion because you know you got a nice ride. You know you want to stay up higher, save fuel, and all that. So the guy said, uh, is that pilot's discretion? And the woman said, if it had been pilot's discretion, I would have said pilot's discretion. And it was quiet for a second. And somebody else comes up on the radio and says, didn't I used to be married to you? (laughs) (laughs) Over. uh, Once again, I can't remember. I told you guys these stories in the car, but switching from Denver Center to L.A. Center, um, I checked in. And um, a corporate jet said, Liam, we're getting a really bad ride here. We'd like to try a higher altitude. And L.A. said, well, how, how high do you want? want you know, what, what do you want? He says, we want to be as high as we can get for as long as we can get. And I said, I keep the mic. I said, I hear you, brother. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> every once in a while you can get a zinger in there. And, uh, you yeah. know, but the vocab, yeah, there's a lot of lingo, you know, lingo with the Navy stuff. Uh People show up, you know, okay, you can stow your gear later. You know, I just take it through the hatch. There's the head. You know, I, I've gotten away from that as I've gotten away from the Navy and all that. But uh, mm. the ETA, ETA is probably the one I use the most, Zach, you know, with the kids. What's your ETA? What's your ETA? Our ETA yeah. is this and all that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. This, you know. Oh, that's good. That's good. Do you, is there any, uh, like, pilot superstitions? And like ones that are like any any ones that you believe in or even that you just find are very prevalent? I think, um, well, the, the first early one as flight students, it was your lucky T-shirt that you wore under your flight <laughs> under your flight suit. So if you wore, if you had a good flight and you'd wear that T-shirt again. And then if you had a bad flight with that T-shirt, you'd get a new one. Or if you wore a different T-shirt and had a bad flight, you'd go back to the other T-shirt. That was, that was one of the early superstitions. And then um, I never really liked it when uh, squadrons would brag about, you know, we've obtained 10,000 accident-free hours of flying or things like that, or so many years of accident-free flying. It was, that's kind of like a jinx, you know, like you never want to, you know, say mm-hmm. anything bad, but there were, there were a couple of, there were two guys flying and air traffic control called up and said, uh, how's your, uh, how's your ride there at, at uh, 31,000? And the co-pilot said, uh, nice and smooth. So the captain pokes him in the arm 
And the, and the FO says, why'd you do that? He says, well, because you're going to jinx it. You never say it's smooth because then it's going to start getting bumpy. So you just say, you know, it's okay with the occasional bump here and there. So the FO is sitting over there. And he's kind of fuming because, you know, the captain hit him, hit him in his arm. You know, he didn't like that. And he smiles. <laughs> he pulls his arm and says to the captain, he says, hey, look how good those engines are running right now. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the best flight I've ever been on. That's something I do like, out of spite. It's like, yo, you want to talk about jinx? You want to hit me in the arm? Cool. I'll jinx everything yes. I can. Yes, yeah. Try not to jinx things like, oh, I guess our flights are going to go, you know, well today or something like that. It's like, oh, I don't jinx it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice weather. You know. I always felt that kind of shit so was so clear. arbitrary too, right? I mean, you might as well just say, well, I've been alive so many years and I haven't died yet. It's like, it's like the same statistics well why do you get life insurance because yeah. you think you're gonna die right and some people don't right and they, and they don't but not everybody <laughs> not everybody who doesn't get life insurance <laughs> dies right i don't know it's just yeah just yeah. little jinx the little things you do so yeah but uh all right so i have one i want uh i have what i would say is maybe the final question final uh, for today's show but uh, do you have any other questions Zach? no i'm all, i'm all right what about you, Pete? Any other questions? No, but you guys know anytime you want to call and ask me something, I'm more than happy to talk to you guys. This has been a blast. I'll call you late at night, you know, just. But uh, no, this has been yeah. fun. Thank you for uh, letting me ask the questions too. Because this has been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So. Oh, yeah. I, I love it. I love it when people ask us questions. That's just yeah. as fun, really. Yeah, for real. It's nice to be interviewed <laughs> in, in a way. Okay. So it's pretty simple. Um, tomorrow morning, if you woke up and you were invited to a podium, to speak to the world, what would you say? Let's see. I think I would say that we need to start talking and listening to each other because there are, the, the solutions are out there, but, but we're being we're being manipulated by the powers that be for their own benefit, and we need to get smart about this and start demanding that each side start talking to each other and solving these problems because the solutions are out there, but they're greedy. They don't want to give up a little piece of the pie. And, and that's the problem. So we need to start talking and listening to each other and start demanding that of our leaders. <laughs>